Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Lockstala Saga on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And a Happy New Year to you, John, and to all of our listeners. And a Happy New Year to you. Any uh, any resolutions you need to share this year? Uh, yeah, I've got one. I resolve to finish our coverage of Lockstala Saga this year. <laughs> That's pretty safe. Is it really? Because yeah. it seems like we're still doing it. And uh, we've we've still got like 40% of the saga left to do. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, welcome to our two-year trawl through uh, Laxdala Saga, everyone. Now, in in fairness, we didn't actually start on the saga until about mid-April of last okay. year. So we've still got a few months to finish this thing before we even hit the one-year mark. Well, here's my question. Do you think we can do that? It would take a miracle. But, hey, anything's possible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anything. What we All really right. need to do is to start killing off our protagonists. Well... There's good news there. Yeah, well, we've been getting predictions and foretellings of the death of a major character for several episodes now. Uh, so I don't think mm-hmm. we can really classify this as a spoiler, but yes. More more of a payoff. Yeah, but before the prognosticating Piper gets paid... Oh, here we go. Last time on Saga Thing. Returning to Iceland after a fairly embarrassing few years in Norway as King Olaf's pet Icelander, Kjartan Olafsson hopes to reignite the long-since-extinguished flame of Gudrun Osvastotter's love. But it's Kjartan who gets burned when he learns that his foster brother Botley has married Gudrun in his absence, after tattling on him for dallying with King Olaf's lovely sister. Heartbroken and angry, Kjartan instead marries the beautiful sister of his business partner, Hrepna Asger's daughter who's the bee's knees in the looks department, but lacks Gudrun's fiery pride. And Kjartan gives her a daisy of a wedding gift, a costly headdress that was meant as a gift for Gudrun from Kjartan's Norwegian princess, Friend. Friend, eh? Yes, just very good friends. Hmm. Gudrun's jealous anger and Kjartan's spiteful pride lead to a deeply awkward situation in a social circle of the region, as the pair snipe at each other through a series of house parties. Their war of wills raises tensions and puts a whole box of nails in the coffin of Kjartan and Botley's once legendary friendship. Guthrie eventually deals dirty by arranging the theft of Kjartan's favorite sword. The sword was a gift from King Olaf that has been prophesied to keep him safe. But of course, only if he's wearing it. Though the scabbard is gone for good, Kjartan's servant rescues the sword. <laughs> the sword? Yeah, the sword. But the damage is done. Kjartan refuses to wear the sullied weapon, thus losing the protection it offered. A second theft of Hrepna's headdress pushes Kjartan too far, leading to angry words between Kjartan and Botli. Meanwhile, Gudrun's brother Thorolf secretly burns the headdress at her request. Or so rumor has it. What will be the true cost of the headdress now that it's been destroyed? And can anyone avert the looming showdown between the Foster brothers? Find out this time in... Laxdala Saga, chapters 47 to 51. All right, so this episode is all about consequences. Uh, the rest of the saga is mostly about consequences. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, when people talk about Laxdala Saga as one of the great sagas, they're usually talking about the middle and final thirds, the part we're in now. I think that's fair. Uh, the, ep- the events of the last episode and the episode we're talking about tonight mark the end of Act 2. Right? And the third act, I think, is a technical show by the author. There have been a lot of dominoes set up in the last 20 chapters or so, and now they're all going to start falling. And uh, speaking of falling, not everyone is going to make it through this episode alive. Is that a threat? It's a promise, John. 
Well, it's just reading ahead, really. Uh, but what we're <laughs> describing sounds, I mean, it sounds formulaic, right? mm-hmm. and it is, yeah. uh, but it's also really well executed. Uh, so one of the things we're going to have to start keeping an eye on and we're going to have to deal with eventually is whether this saga is a work of artistic brilliance or whether it's a technical achievement by an author who knew the formula of the sagas and could build a story on that structure. Hmm. Yeah, Daniel Sabborg uh, makes a similar point in the Rutledge Saga Research Companion. Mm-hmm. He says that insight into the stories and unspoken subtexts of the sagas, quote, does not require life experience, but rather a good knowledge of the genre and of a limited group of formulas. Huh. Does not require life experience, you said? Yeah. I, I mean, we could get into a whole debate about that. Well, I know. I mean, I've not been in a lot of feuds involving swords and <laughs> chopping off limbs, so I lack that life experience. And yet I can sure. connect. Uh, sure. Anyway, we, we don't have time to get deep into that argument because, John, <laughs> the saga awaits. Part 32. Something smelly this way comes. Something smelly this way comes implies movement, John. Uh-huh. I'm not sure that accurately reflects what's about to happen. Oh, oh, there's movements, Andy. Lots of <laughs> movements. I see. All right. Well, fair enough. So uh, I believe we left things off with the death of Oscar Scatterbrain and mm-hmm. rumors of Thorolf Oswifson burning the famous headdress on his sister's orders. Is that right? It is, yeah. Uh, and even though it's Christmas time in Luxedal, Carton is still brooding over the insult to his wife and to himself at the hands of Gudrun and her brothers, and of course his one-time best friend, Botley. Well, as soon as Christmas is over, Kjartan rounds up a band of 60 men. 60, John. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of men. He gives them tents and provisions, and then they all ride on over to Laugar. 60 men with tents and provisions. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if this were not a saga, I would say he's preparing a siege. I mean, that's not far from the truth. Uh, because when they arrive, Kjartan orders the men to set up their tents all around the property, basically surrounding it. See, that really does sound like a siege. Well, John, tell me what a siege usually hopes to accomplish, and then we can judge whether this is a siege or not. Okay. Uh, well, a siege is usually set up by surrounding the target city or town or farmstead or whatever it is and cutting off the supply lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you limit the possibility of reinforcements uh, or of resupplying. You cut the defender off from their access to fresh food and water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put them in a precarious position in general. And in the meantime, the attacker can build up their forces and prepare for an all-out assault if the defender does not submit according to schedule. Okay, right. Now, at its core, the siege is about cutting off supply lines and making the target as uncomfortable as possible before an attack. In the simplest terms, yes. Excellent. Okay, well, here's what Kjartan does. So remember that it's winter in Laxadal, so it's cold and snowy. And as the saga tells us, it was fashionable at the time to have outdoor toilets some distance from the farmhouse, which was the case at Lauger. So Kjartan stations men at each of the doors to the farmhouse at Lauger and prevents anyone from leaving the building, no matter how urgent the the need. Oh, dear. Now, it's an interesting comment to make and, and one worth pausing over, I think. Um, mm-hmm. As we've seen in most of the bathroom scenes in the sagas that we've covered, uh, for example, in Aerpigia Saga, uh, the toilets for most Icelandic farmhouses in the Viking Age were indeed outside and separate from the house. 
Jesse Bayak explains in his chapter on resources and subsistence in his book Viking Age Iceland that by the 11th century, when many families were more established and prosperous and their farms were more permanent, and when right. architectural ingenuity allowed for innovation, they started building turf farmhouses with an interior wooden structure that provided the framework and additional support that would allow for additional rooms to be added. And one of the most common features of these later farmhouses of the Viking Age in Iceland was attached latrine rooms. And Bayok suggests it's not only convenient, it's a lot safer huh. to go to the bathroom in one of these attached latrines because it doesn't force you to go outside where your enemies might be waiting to get you. Right. So in other words, in other words, it's dangerous to go alone. <laughs> right. It's dangerous <laughs> to go alone in the, uh, the wind and the rain and with all those enemies out there. But uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but we were talking about Kjartan and the pseudo-siege of Laugar. So, uh, with Kjartan and his men stationed at each of the doors, the people of Laugar, including Gudrun and Botli, are forced to relieve themselves indoors. Kjartan and his men stay at Laugar, guarding the doors for three whole days before they pack up and head home, leaving the people of Laugar to wallow in their stink. Oh, I mean, presumably they get to work cleaning <laughs> right away. Uh, that is that is one of the I mean it's it's one of the better and funnier petty acts of revenge I can think of in the whole of saga literature. It's 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 pretty low yeah, low I, stuff. It's right up there for me, but uh, and, and you know it's not best bloodshed because no blood is shed in that. But what a what a heck of a I mean it's best shed. <laughs> Something is shed. Yeah. <laughs> can we? Does it have to be? Blood? I don't know. It it's a, it's a it's a great one though. But uh, tell me, uh, John, this is the real question: Is this a siege? Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, it's a little unconventional, but it's a siege. Right? Uh, Kjartan cuts off access to functioning outhouses for three days, uh, forcing the people of Lauger into a an uncomfortable sure. situation. True, it's but a siege. There, there is no attack, and there's no forced surrender or submission. No territory or titles have been given up or changed hands. It's it's all just designed to humiliate. Well, we never said that you had to exchange mm -hmm. anything in a siege, right? Just you're, you're forcing someone to submit mm -hmm. to your will. In this case, uh, to break potty training. <laughs> they don't have to go uh, in their pants, John. <laughs> they just have to go on the, gr on the ground in a bucket, what, what have you. Yeah, well, that's yeah. fair. That's true. That's true. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't help but feel like you're setting me up deliberately here with a, uh, a good opportunity. Yeah, well, I'm glad you finally picked <laughs> up on that. I, I, As you know, I used to be a softball pitcher, and uh, nobody lobs them in there for home runs <laughs> quite like me. Yes, I recall that. <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned uh, submission and territory yes. and titles here, and I assume those are among the soft. They are. It did take locked. you a little longer than I thought to uh, hit them out of the park. But go ahead. <laughs> let's see. Let's see you knock them out of the park. Proceed. Sorry, I was I was distracted by <laughs> the the sounds and smells <laughs> of Lauger yeah. after three days. Uh, if we think about it all literally, you're right. I mean, nothing is lost or gained mm -hmm. in the siege of Lauger. But if we think about yes. the game of honor, right, our, our favorite pastime here at Zagathing, the the men of Lauger and Gudrun have all given ground to Kjartan by submitting to the humiliation of relieving themselves indoors for three days. I mean, they have the option of fighting their way out, but of course they'd be cut to ribbons because Kjartan brought mm -hmm. 60 men. Uh, and the result of that is that, that everyone inside has lost honor yeah, and reputation. As word of this humiliation spreads throughout Iceland, things will only get worse mm. for them, right? It's a humiliating act. It's shameful. And right. the fact that right. Kjartan did it just to show that he could, well, that lets everyone know who's in charge in this district. It's a devastating mm -hmm. loss for Gudrun and her brothers. Well, and for Botley. 
Right, yes, Boltley's there. But the relationship between Kjartan and Boltley continues to be complicated. I think we'll just say that for now. They're, mm-hmm. they're cousins and they're blood brothers and formerly best friends. But most important, they are foster brothers. They were both raised together by Olaf Peacock. And that close tie of kinship, that makes the evolving animosity between the two rather difficult to resolve through traditional means. Mm-hmm. But uh, more on Botley and that relationship soon. For now, this is a conflict between Kjartan and Gudrun and her brothers. Right. And again, one that has now descended to a really low and petty level of, uh, uh, of honor stealing, right? of, of humiliating one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it occurs to me we have seen one other example similar to this, not a siege, but in uh, the saga of Killer Skuta, uh, wasn't there a sequence where someone arrived early at the all thing and then had all of his men use somebody else's booth as a latrine? Um, I definitely remember days. people uh, showing up and taking over booths and stuff. Do I remember someone using a booth a, as a latrine? They used the booth as a latrine for several days uh, because they knew this was the booth that their rival preferred. <laughs> um, I don't, I honestly don't remember that. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that episode because. So, I mean, this, this, that I think funny. still wins the gold medal, but that's, that's a, that's a close <laughs> silver. I, well, I don't know. That's still a good one. If, if you're showing up and then you're like, you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, you lay your carpet out first and you're like, let's set everything up. And you're like walking around. Does he smell? <laughs> <laughs> Do you smell that? Oh, dear. Does, oh dear. Come here and smell this corner, John. Does yeah. this smell like pee? <laughs> Somebody get me a light. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. if you show up at night. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. But yeah, no, this this is I mean, this is a conflict that is is wearing down both sides, right? Yeah. Uh, Gudrun and the Oswestons are seething over the insult to their honor. Uh, Olaf Peacock is frustrated with his son's, and we'll call it unconventional approach to siege warfare. Yeah. Um, and Hrefna, Hrefna is just concerned that Kjartan may have spent his time at Lager chatting with Gudrun. Now, is there anything to indicate that Kjartan was exchanging pleasantries with Gudrun during this time? Oh, no. If anything, unpleasantries. <laughs> right. Uh, but but Hrefna suspects that Kjartan still has feelings for Gudrun, and where would she have gotten that idea from? Mm. Uh, and her imagination, so it, her imagination just runs wild anytime Kjartan and Gudrun are near each other. I mean, it, it's understandable. Like you said, uh, does he have feelings for Gudrun? I think maybe, maybe just, just a, little, a little bit, just a little bit. So yeah, understandable that she would feel this way. Yeah. And when her jealousy gets the better of her, she says, I heard that you and Gudrun talked plenty. And I also heard that she put on the headdress while you talked and that it became her extremely well. <laughs> just kind of ridiculous. But Keratin says, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, Repna, but I'll tell you this. Gudrun wouldn't need the headdress to look more becoming than any other woman. Oh, oh, no. Oh. Yeah. No. That's his wife. That is an unnecessarily harsh response, Kjartan. It is, but it does effectively shut Hrepna down. So much so that she's basically out of the saga, John. (laughs) She's going to pop up a couple more times very indirectly, just kind of being mentioned, but Mm -hmm. she's done being an active player in this saga. Hang on. She's got one more important thing to do. What? What does she do? Uh, she does have a baby. Oh, right. Yes, little Ausker. But uh, John, as much as we'd like him to be a player in the saga, he's he's not. He just no. I mean, he's not. But it's worth mentioning. I get, because as a woman, Refna is little more than a baby factory. Oh, an, an object come on. of male desire, a figure to inspire jealousy in Gudrun and to feel jealousy of her in return. Oh, no, come on! Now. Like like she's some sort of flat plot device. Uh. 
No, because I genuinely forgot that Asker wasn't going to do anything in this saga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, uh, this is not – the point is that uh, part of this relationship has been that their relationship has to this point been a loving one and a happy one. Uh-huh. Right? And the the production of a child, the, the result of a child is from that happy relationship. Yeah. Note that Gudrun and Butley at this point have not produced children. It's They're going to happen. Not. It's going to happen. We're going to get to that. But as of right now – Right. Uh, they have not produced children. We have been led to believe that their relationship is less happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's significant that Hrefna and Cardin do have a child. It's not It's not just about Hrefna fulfilling a wifely duty or any nonsense like that. There's a real, there's a, a sort of a significance to the presence of this child. Sure, sure. Uh, but do you think uh, that uh, Hrefna comes across as a terribly dynamic female character in this saga? Oh, God, no. No, no. not at all. Uh, no. But I do feel for her in this situation. Me too. I do. All right, so Carton is satisfied with the soggy and smelly siege of Lauger. And everyone <laughs> who is forced to go to the bathroom indoors for three days is, as we might expect, outraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the people of Lauger would have preferred that Carton simply come in and kill a few people rather than suffer the indignity and shame of those three days. So what's next? Part 33, Tunga, where dreams come home. Now... I don't know if you recall, John, but right across the valley from Lauger is a property called Seilingsdaltunga, or Tunga for short. And it's owned by a man called Thorarin. Yep. Uh, Thorarin was introduced briefly when we first met Osvif. He's the man who sold Osvif most of the land that he owns in Seilingsdaltunga. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot of land, but it's enough for all the livestock they've got. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, Thorarin decides to sell the rest of his property at Tunga because the growing hostility between the Oswifsons and Kjartan, well, it's made him uncomfortable. Plus, there's it's a me uncomfortable. strange smell coming from, <laughs> from right. Lauger at the moment. Uh, but, but also, he needs the money, it turns out. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, when Butley hears about the sale of nearby land, he jumps at the chance to get a farm of his own and create some, uh, some distance, I would say some much-needed distance, between himself and Gudrun's brothers. Not much distance, mind you. It's it's. Uh, I've looked at the map there. It's barely more than a mile away. It's right. Yes, but there. a much needed barely more than a mile away. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So so Butley and Gudrun ride over to speak with Thorarin about purchasing the property, and it doesn't take them long to agree upon a price. We've got a motivated seller and mm-hmm. a motivated buyer. That's right. Uh, and the deal is as good as done, except for one small but important detail. There are no other witnesses present to make the sale legal, so they decide to finalize the deal with witnesses at a later date, and then they part ways. Yeah. In the meantime, word of this potential sale, well, it travels south to Hjardaholt. Potential, Andy. It's 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 all done but the dusting. I mean, it's it's a mere formality. Well, No one could make an argument that this deal is not already, uh, uh, the ink is not already settled on this one. Well, without witnesses, it's not exactly done, is it? So <laughs> as soon as Kjartan hears about Thorarin's informal agreement with Botley, Informal, he... potential. I can see whose side you're on here. It's not the side. It's it's the side of the law, John. I see. So Kjartan uh, rides north as quickly as he can with a party of 11 other men. It's about 13 miles from Hjartherholt to Tunga. So Kjartan's able to arrive very early the next morning. Uh, Thorarin invites him in and wonders, what brings him north to Tunga? That's a good question. Uh, it is a good question, and Kjartan doesn't waste much time beating around the bush. He explains that he wasn't best pleased when he heard that Thorarin planned to sell Tunga to Butley and Gudrun. Thorarin is flabbergasted. 
while the price that Botley offered me for the property is pretty high, and he intends to pay it soon, I believe. Well, Kjartan insists that Thorarin not let this happen. Well, I, I'll buy the property for the same price, Thorarin, and I don't think it will do you much good to refuse me on this. Everyone will soon realize that I intend to determine the course of events in this district, Ooh. and I intend to show more respect for the views of other people than those of the men at Lauger. Oh, dear. Yeah. And those are those are bold words, and it's also, this is a big demand. Well, is it a demand, John? It feels more like a threat to me. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's 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 splitting some fairly fine hairs, yeah. but uh, um, I think threat is a bit strong. He's not saying that he's going to break Thorarin's legs if he doesn't sell him the property or anything like that. Well, he's not saying anything like that, but uh, we have seen this kind of power play before. It's the whole, uh, it would be a shame if something bad happened to your livestock. You know that routine. These are some nice sheep you got here. It'd be a shame if they burned to the ground. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying you'll be inside the sheet, but you never know. <laughs> but you never know. Terrible accident like that could happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be a real shame. <laughs> you inside that sheep, burning up yeah. like that. I don't know. Who amongst us has never been inside of a flaming sheep? <laughs> Well, yeah, anyway, we, we we have done a routine kind of like that, not usually involving yeah. sheep in that way. We've never burned a sheep before. But. No. Uh, well, that's, I have a lot of questions about what's going on there. Um, <laughs> would have made more sense if they were threatening his farmhouse, maybe, but... Uh, yeah, your farmhouse. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Did I say sheep? I meant yeah, your farmhouse. I meant your farmhouse. Yeah. They often confuse livestock and buildings. <laughs> Look, like, I, I get so mad sometimes. I, I'm just the muscle. What do you want from me? I just follow in orders. Anyway, yeah, yeah. But uh, Kjartan, you know, the point here is he's not really giving Thorarin a choice, is he? Even though it might sound like he is. I think he's giving he's giving Thorarin the same choice that he gave uh, Butley and Gudrun and everybody else about the bathroom. <laughs> right. You can come outside and go to the bathroom, but I will kill you. Yeah, you can come outside and try to go to the bathroom, but I don't you, think you, you'll like the results. Right, you you can sell this farm to Botley, but I may kill you. <laughs> I may burn your sheep to the ground. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's uh, uh, Thorin understands obviously that he's being given a choice that is no choice at all. Mm -hmm. He says, "The master's word is law, I suppose. But if I had my way, I'd keep my word to Botley and sell him the property as we agreed. Property. <laughs> property. Uh, property." Just three um, syllables in property. <laughs> I like to say all three of them. Only during business agreements. <laughs> now, Kjartan, uh, he's not interested in what Thorin wants very much. And conveniently, Kjartan has brought the uh, the right number of men to witness the sale of the property and make it fully legal. Well, that, and, that seems like uh, something that Botley should have thought of. <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, anyway, so uh, the deal's done. Kjartan, uh, he's got himself a nice new farm. Right, and the question is, why? Well, What's so important about this farm that Kjartan is willing to ride all the way up to Tunga early in the morning to bully Thorarin and pay more for the farm than it's worth? Well, who's lobbing softballs now? I'm just keeping the softball rolling. All right. Well, uh, there's a few good reasons, and they're all pretty obvious, as I think you know. Uh, first and foremost, it undercuts Boltley. Uh, not only does it make Boltley look 
bad for having failed to seal the deal when he had the chance, it actually mirrors Boltley's betrayal quite nicely. Mm. Kjartan thought that he had Guthrun in hand, but Boltley swooped in and stole her before Kjartan could legally fulfill the terms of their betrothal. Uh-huh. Here, Kjartan has done the same thing to Boltley with the property that he had hoped to settle on and build a family, produce some children. Very nice point, yes. Um, and then there's this, the strategic angle as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Kjartan is making a political move here. Right? He's working to undercut Boltley and the Oswesons by blocking any attempt to expand their property. Yeah. Now, property is influence in more places than just medieval Iceland. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is sort of a, a truism of medieval Europe. Uh, right, of modern power. modern America, too. Well, I mean, fair enough. Uh, the men of Lauger, just they just don't have enough land yet to wield any real power in the district. Yeah, and uh, their prospects don't look very good with a powerful man like Kjartan now actively working against them. No, things look somewhat grim for them, actually, and Gudrun knows it. She approaches Botley and says, It looks to me like Kjartan has given you a less attractive choice than he's given Thorarin. Either let him have control of the whole district and lose more honor... Or show yourself less spineless when your paths cross in the future than you have up till now. Harsh words from Gudrun, but like you said, she mm. knows what's at stake and how this is going to play out if Kjartan is allowed to run roughshod over Botley and the Oswifsons. If Botley doesn't do something about Kjartan, then he and Gudrun and the Oswifsons, well, they really have no future in this part of Iceland. I mean, they could go ahead and make themselves land by themselves They by producing night soil in their farm. <laughs> and maybe... <laughs> just keep stacking it up. And just using that. Yeah, just, you know, just, just build yourself a little extra every night. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sure Boltley understands that, uh, I mean, more than anybody else at Lauger, but he understands the situation as Gudrun describes it, but he doesn't rise to Gudrun's baiting. He maintains the same silence that he's had about all things concerning Kjartan and walks away. Yeah. I actually, I really like the author's handling of Boltley in this section of the saga. Mm-hmm. He knows what has to be done, but he's reluctant to do it. And the question is why? Is he reluctant to act merely because of the kinship he shares with Kjartan, or does he still hold on to that bond of friendship that they shared throughout their lives? John, let me ask you this important question. Do you think that Boltley stole Gudrun from Kjartan with ill intent? Well, well... If he stole her, then I'd say yes. No, no. I Okay, that's my fault. Poor choice of words. Do you think that mm-hmm. Boltley went home from Norway intending to undercut his foster brother and best friend by marrying the woman that he loved? Or do you think that Boltley genuinely thought that Kjartan was setting himself up for a life of fame and glory in Norway with no intention of coming home to Iceland and marrying Gudrun? That's an interesting question. Um, the problem is that, that Boltley... We talked about this a couple episodes ago. Boltley is almost characterized by a lack of characterization interesting uh, in this saga that he's a very quiet person mm-hmm. uh, somewhat somewhat more cynical than Kjartan, but also more kind of thoughtful and introspective yes right? um, that he is uh, almost defined by his ability to keep his own counsel where I would say Kjartan might in terms of manliness in the sagas might err on the side of being a little bit sort of outspoken and a little bit outgoing with his thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's hard to know what he's, the motivation behind what he's doing. So I guess we really are just speculating here. But my speculation is that yes and yes, he, he <laughs> does ride think the that Kjartan, I mean, Kjartan is clearly at that stage in the story, 
getting very comfortable in Norway. Yeah. Uh, according to the narrative, remember, he actually suggests being used as a hostage against the aristocracy. Yes, of he does. He does. Right. That he has at this point, essentially, as we said, gone, you know, Stockholm syndrome, but the Norway version. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's gone Oslo syndrome. And he's really working with the Norwegian royal family against Iceland. Even though he says, I don't want to go against my kinsmen, so I'm going to stay here. But right. I, but he's, he follows that up with, I think they'd be more willing to work with you if you had yes. me here. Right. And, you know, we, as we did see, he is spending time with the king's sister. Yes. And as we pointed out, the king is essentially saying, you know, if you were going to, for example, marry any local princesses, I'd be in favor of that. Yeah. Yeah. That I think, you know, is there a reason for Botley to believe that absolutely Kjartan is setting himself up for a very comfortable life in Norway, never to return to Iceland? Yes. Yeah. Also, does he want to believe that because it allows him to go home and say that Kjartan is not coming home sure. and thus frees up Gudrun to marry Botley, who everyone recognizes the second best man in the district? Right. Uh, yes. So, so, and in that way, Botley is asserting himself in a way that he hasn't been able to in the past. He's moving out from under uh, Kjartan's shadow really nicely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if that if that comes at the cost of absolute honesty, well, <laughs> these things happen, right? But you know, as as he points out to Gudrun, it's not like Kjartan sent me home with a message for you, or that he even thought of you as I was leaving. Right, which is absolutely true. It's all true. So why would Botley think that Kjartan has any intention of coming back? Right, although I did say at the time, and I'm going to stick, even though I'm not necessarily Kjartan's biggest fan, I do think it's true that Kjartan would be a fool to leave a message for Gudrun with Botley, who he knows is a rival for her affection. No, he's his best friend. Foster brother. I'm just saying, you know, how how much would you trust that message would be received unadulterated? I don't think think Kjartan thinks that hard, to be honest with you. (laughs) Wow. I, I disagree. I think he's I, I do think he's a deeper thinker mm. than Kjartan. Uh, not necessarily a, a, a nicer person. Yeah. But I think he's he, he thinks more thoroughly about things than the guy who says, you know, what I think we should do is burn the king in his house. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious when you see Botley and Kjartan developing an animosity, like where does that actually start? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, I would say right about the third or fourth time that Butley is squatting over a bucket <laughs> in his own house. Right. But, you know, other people think that it starts a, a lot earlier. Um, I've, I've read articles where they say uh, that yeah. that moment where Kjartan says uh, where they see the uh, King Olaf swimming and uh, and uh, right. Kjartan says, why don't you go get him, Butley? And Butley's like, ah, I don't think I, you know, I'm not really the man for that. Right. Kjartan's like, well, uh, you've missed your opportunity. Here I go. And he jumps in the water. Right. <laughs> No, I, I, I think I mean I think there's a reason why we are shown that it's Gudrun's brother who's been responsible for things like the stolen sword and I the agree. stolen headdress. Right? It's not Botley. He has not been involved. Yeah. Uh the first sort of sign, the first overt act of hostility between them is Kjartan accusing Botley of knowing about the thefts. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Botley committing any thefts. So I think you know, this is really this is the part of the saga where we're we're just seeing Botley and Kjartan realizing that they've kind of reached a point where their their friendship has broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, wh- I mean, whatever we think of Kjartan and Botley and their uh, mm-hmm. complicated relationship, uh, the growing conflict between the two of them, it, it really has reached an impasse of sorts. Yeah. As Gudrun has said, either Botley does something about it now 
or they are doomed to live in obscurity and likely poverty as well. Mm-hmm. So what's he going to do, John? Live in obscurity. <laughs> no, uh, for now, he's just going to stay quiet and go about his business. Right, again, this is a man who keeps his own counsel. Mm-hmm. So there's no narrative indication that he intends to do anything to harm his foster brother. Yeah, no indication, but surely he must be plotting something. I don't know if he is. I, that might be true. And honestly, I, I think you're right. But his wife and brothers-in-law, well, they aren't going to sit idly by and let Carton humiliate them anymore. I mean, he made them poop in the house. Part 34. A chatterbox and a twig belly. It's the third day of Easter, and Kjartan has arrived at Tunga with his trusted companion, Alm the Black. Now, listeners might be saying to themselves, who is Alm the Black? It's a reasonable question. It is. It would be understandable. Uh, he was only mentioned once, way back when Olaf Peacock and Thorgerd were setting up at uh, Hoskelstader. Uh, now, we mentioned it at the time that Olaf had two brothers in his household, both named Aun. One of them was Aun the White, and the other is Aun the Black. We haven't heard about them in a while, but... Uh, wait, 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 no. Uh, Aun the White was in our last episode. Was he? Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who followed uh, Thorolf Oswaldson after after Kjartan Sword went missing. Oh. He followed the tracks in the snow. He managed to find Kjartan's sword in the bog. That guy. That's right. Okay, well, I stand corrected. But uh, uh, my point was that we haven't seen Alm the Black since that first mention. Correct, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Kjartan and Alm the Black show up at Thorarin's property on the third day of Easter. Go on. Yes, yeah, so in order to pay for the property, Kjartan needs Thorarin to travel north with him to Saurbar. Well, he'll, he'll transfer ownership of some large sums of debt owed to him over to Thorarin. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wait a minute. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I need to make sure I understand this yeah. properly. So, not only is Kjartan putting Thorarin, who's desperate for money, by the way, in the awkward yeah. position of having to renege on his promise to Botley and sell the land by force, mm-hmm. he's not no, even no, going to... No, no, no force, no force, no force. By suggestion. By suggestion. <laughs> right? So not only that, he's not even going to pay for the land outright. Yep. Instead, he's just transferring someone else's debts owed and leaving it to Thorarin to collect on those himself. Yes, it is. World <laughs> medieval Icelandic cryptocurrency, yes. Man, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. I, wait, hey, if you've got the ability to wield power at no cost to yourself, eh, mm. why not take advantage? This is a terrible deal for Thorarin. Oh, absolutely it is. Uh, but what's he going to do about it? Well, not a damn thing. <laughs> that's correct. He, he's got to protect his sheep. That's right. That's right. You don't want to burn sheep. Uh, no. So when Kjartan arrives at Tunga, he learns that Thorarin is out at a nearby farm, so he'll have to wait before heading north. But uh. fear not, Kjartan Allen won't be bored because there's someone else visiting Tunga that day to keep them entertained. Aha. Uh-huh. Is it Gudrun? No, no. It's Thorhatla Chatterbox. Ah, Thorhatla Chatterbox. John, who is that? Who's the... Yeah, that? Uh, yeah, that's understandable. Uh, if you go back to chapter 32, where we first met Osvif, Gudrun, and Thorarin, you'll find that we're also introduced to Thorhatla Chatterbox there as one of Osvif's household. Mm. As her nickname, Malga, or Chatterbox, indicates, Thorhatla can fill a silence. Uh, <laughs> and she's also got two talkative and unpopular sons, Aud and Stain. Okay, great. So now we remember them. Uh-huh. So... Kjartan and Aun are sitting around waiting for Thorarin to return, and Thorhatla is full of questions for them. Where are you headed? We're going to Sauber. Really? What are you doing there? It's business. 
Interesting, interesting. Lots of business up there, I'm sure. What route are you going to take, if you don't mind me asking? We're just heading north through Silingsdal on the way there, but uh, we will come back through Svinadal. That makes sense, that makes sense. How long will you be there? Just till Thursday. Oh, that's wonderful. Listen, could you do me a huge favor? There's a kinsman of mine who lives up there, just to the west of Hittadal, and she's promised me half a mark of homespun cloth. Do you think you could swing by the farm and collect that for me? If it's not too much trouble, it's on your way, after all. Mm, sure, Thorhatla, yes. We'll take care of it. Oh, look, it's Thororin. Great, uh, we've got to go now. But, nice talking but, with you. Well, we'll be neighbors soon. We can talk all the time. My sons would no, love sure, to get Sure, sure, the- bye, bye now. Thank you. Thorhatla Chatterbox, everyone. Oh. Well, you know, the thing about Thorhatla Chatterbox is that she just mm. keeps talking. And when she returns home to Lauger that evening, she's quick to share all the news about where Kjartan is heading, what route he's taking, and when he's coming back through Svinadal. Mm-hmm. John, I actually, I like this approach. You know, usually we'd have a slave who's sent to spy and collect right. the information. But here, we've got a character that's designed from the beginning to just enjoy gathering information and she sharing it. chat. Yeah. A chatterbox, if you right. will. And so when she gets back, she says things like, oh, that Kjartan is really something else. I've never seen him look so dashing. Honestly, it's no wonder that a man like that feels a cut above the rest. Good for him, I say. <laughs> yes. Well, Gudrun hears this and, and she says, <laughs> Kjartan can well afford to act as boldly as he likes. And why shouldn't he? Experience has shown that no matter what offense he commits, no one here will do anything about it. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's a pointed comment directed at Butley and her brothers. and mm-hmm. They all hear her and understand perfectly what she's implying. But, of course, they're all busy washing out their buckets thoroughly. And so they, <laughs> they really can't do anything about it at the moment. I can't uh, get her, the smell out. <laughs> her brothers respond with a few scornful words for Kjartan. But Butley sits quietly and pretends that he didn't hear a word of it. In, in, and in case you're wondering if Butley is just keeping his anger against Kjartan pent up inside, well... I don't think that's the case. The saga tells us directly that any time anyone criticized Kjartan in his presence, he either kept silent or even argued in Kjartan's defense. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's no animosity, though. It just Hmm. means that Butley can see Kjartan's side of things and that he still respects their bonds of kinship. Okay. Uh, We can also consider that he is, it's the, no one insults my brother but me logic. Right. Okay. Botley may think ill of Kjartan, but that doesn't mean he's going to tolerate anybody else speaking ill of his foster brother. Mm-hmm. Even if he doesn't like or love Kjartan anymore, he's still going to do that much for it. Sure. Okay, fair enough. But <clears throat> I still think he likes Kjartan. Mm-hmm. He's just in an untenable situation with his foster brother on one side and his wife and her family on the other. He's stepped in a real pile of dew. You know what I'm saying? They and at c- this they point... They could get him all out after three days, huh? <laughs> no. At, at this point, you know, the best thing he can do is just keep quiet and hope things resolve themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, how's that working out for him so far? Not so good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not winning him any honor in the district. And Mm-mm. and uh, at this point, other Kjartan is in full control. Uh, okay, other Kjartan. Uh, I'm not sure Butley is going to be able to get anywhere in, anywhere in life with, uh, with Kjartan around, or at least with other Kjartan around. Well, it sounds like you're on Gudrun's side then. Uh, you you want Botley to step up and do something drastic. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just agreeing with you that Botley is stuck between a rock and a hard place. 
Yeah, okay, quite right. Uh, now, Kjartan spends the following evening at Hull, which is a farm belonging to some good friends of Kjartan's. Um, I believe we got introduced to them in Chapter 32 as well. It's one of those. Yeah, Chapter 32 lays out all the dramatis personae for this section of the saga. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good spot to check in and figure out who's who. If you're reading the saga... Put a bookmark in at chapter 32. <laughs> right. So while these characters don't play a huge role, it, it is worth mentioning them now because they're about to get involved in Kjartan's mess somewhat. Um, there's two brothers, Thorkel Pup and Knut, and they live on the farm at Hull with their brother-in-law, Thord in Gunnarsson. Now, he's described as a strapping figure of a man who's highly capable and often involved in lawsuits. He is reluctantly married to Auth, the sister of Thorkel and Knut, and she's lovingly described as neither good-looking nor exceptional in other ways. Man, the author is pulling no punches here. Right. Uh, sounds like Thor <coughs> may be a little unlucky in his choice of in-laws and spouse. Well, perhaps, but as the saga tells us, he married Auth for the money and the property that she brought with her. Aha, so he's he's getting what he what he paid for here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so well, I don't know if Kjart- he paid for it. He just <laughs> well, right. Uh, Kjard and Alan the Black are hanging out at Hall with their friends. Yeah, and uh, things are going great until Alan the Black settles in for a restful night of sleep after a full day of feasting and entertainment. Something's not right, and Alan tosses and turns in his sleep until the others finally wake him up. Uh, it's another dream sequence. Yes, it is. But this is a good one. One that I think you like. Yeah, honestly, this is one of the rare prophetic dreams in the sagas I don't really mind too much. Uh, Partly because it's given to us as a retrospective. We don't see the dream. We see Aun's recounting of the dream, which is more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And then partly, of course, because it's such an odd and interesting dream. Absolutely, yeah. So when everyone asks Aun what he was dreaming about, he explains. A repulsive woman came to me. She snatched me out of bed. She had a short sword in one hand and twigs in the other. Placing the sword on my chest, she then slit me open at the belly and pulled my entrails out. Oof. Then she stuffed me full with the twigs. And after that, she went out. See, now, that sounds like a dream you'd want to pay close attention to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But Kjartan and the others just laugh and tell him that his name will be Aun Twigbelly from now on. Hmm. Then they grab at him and poke his belly, trying to feel for the twigs inside. <laughs> Nicknames. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a good example of how a nickname is born. Uh-huh. Uh, although it also, what a what a moment, what a, what a thing to imagine, all these other Vikings grabbing a Viking and poking his belly to make him laugh. It's a great <laughs> little detail. Uh, this is, it's, a, it's a really interesting one, because you have to really let your imagination run wild to figure out the origins of a name like Hrismaga or, or Twigbelly if you don't get this story. But the dream explains it all quite nicely for us. Yeah. I wonder, John, if this dream will have any significance going forward. I wonder. Hmm. Uh, well, not everyone thinks to joke, by the way. Uh, Al, the Thor's wife, says that Kjartan might want to reconsider his plans to leave or at least bring me- more men with him on the way home than he rode out with. Now, Kjartan's not interested in what the dream might portend or in the fears of Alth. Uh, he's got a very uh, Volsung approach to fate, I think, in this moment. Uh, uh, he insists on leaving according to schedule, no matter what. Yes, possibly arrogance is a word we might use here. Uh, uh, well, you know, confidence, Al does arrogance. insist that he take her brothers, Thorkel Pup and Knut, with him, just in case. 
Yeah. Uh, Kjartan agrees and sets out with 11 men for Hvitadal to pick up the homespun cloth for Thorhatla Chatterbox before heading south through Svinadal as he had planned. He is a man of his word, after all. Absolutely. Meanwhile, back at Lauger, uh, Gudrun has also gotten up early thanks to Thorhatla, who is a woman of many words. <laughs> uh, she approaches the bedside of her brother Osbach and wakes him along with her other brothers. As Osbach rubs the sleep from his eyes, he wonders why Gudrun is waking them all so early. She explains that she's just wondering what they plan to do with their day. I like that she's uh, starting out subtle here, giving them the opportunity to act on their own behalf. Uh-huh. But uh, they don't take the hint. Ospec just yawns and says that uh, he plans to stay home because uh, not much farm work to be done at the moment. Uh-huh. And Gudrun isn't having it. She shakes him again and says, With your temperament, you'd have made some farmer a good group of daughters, fit to do no one any good or any harm. After all the abuse that Kjartan has heaped on you, you don't let it disturb your sleep at all while he goes riding under your noses with only one other man to accompany him. And she goes on for a while, berating them, calling them no better than pigs and cowards, men who are afraid to stand up for themselves. It's, it's pretty brutal as a tongue lashing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this this wakes Osbeck up quite a bit, um, and uh, all the other Osvifsons wake up uh, as they hear this. And so, following Gudrun's orders, they begin equipping themselves for battle as they're rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, and they prepare to ambush Kjartan on his way home. Right, and while they prepare, Gudrun approaches Botley to ask if he'll be joining her brothers. Uh, well, Botley listens to her. Uh, entreaties, and uh, he insists that it wouldn't be right for him to participate in an attack on his kinsman, especially given how lovingly Olaf Peacock had raised him. Well, I mean, he's not wrong, but Gudrun doesn't care, right? She's not uh, indebted to Olaf Peacock. Mm -hmm. She hits him with a quick dose of reality. What you say is true, Botley, but you're not fortunate enough to be in a position where you can please everyone. If you refuse to go along with my brothers, it will be the end of our life together. Okay. Yeah, if I'm Botley, I jump at this opportunity. To go and kill Kjartan? No, to get the hell out of this marriage. It sounds <laughs> awful. Jeez. What's the advantage to Botley being with Gudrun and her brothers at this point? I mean, you know, she is still regarded as the best match in the district, but it's, um, it's, it's a good question. You'd have to ask Botley. I, well, I can't. He's actually too busy getting his gear together. Uh, Gudrun has managed through her... Uh, provocations to stir up his resentment against Kjartan. Okay, listen, I don't like the situation any more than you do, but I'll say it one more time. Gudrun isn't wrong about the way this whole thing is going to play out. If they don't do something about Kjartan, they're done for politically. True. Yeah. And Botley stands to lose everything, apparently including the affection of his wife, if he doesn't get involved. Yeah, but uh, he stands to lose everything if he does, too. I mean, this poor bastard can't really win. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> he's made his choice, and he's soon on the road with eight other men, including all mm -hmm. of Gudrun's brothers, their cousin Guthlaug, who suddenly appears in the saga, and right. <laughs> the two sons of Thorhatla Chatterbox, Alda and Stain. They ride out to Svinadol and stop at a ravine known as Hafragil. And that's where they're going to tether their horses and wait for Kjartan to arrive. So the ambush is set. Indeed it is. Part 35, Botley and Kjartan, or Icebreaker's Revenge. Well, I hope you'll indulge me for just a moment for a brief geographical or topographical digression. 
Sure. So Why we, wouldn't we at this moment? Well, <laughs> because uh, for those of you who are planning a trip to Iceland, the following scene takes place in Svinadalur. It's a valley that runs along Route 60 or Vestjarðvegur. If you're going to the West Fjords and you're going north, it's the route you're probably going to take. Mm-hmm. Now, this route will take you past uh, Laugar, the former home of Botli and Gudrun. Oh. And uh, I believe there's a hotel there now. It also has a pool fed by a natural hot spring uh, near the hotel, which is quite nice. Uh, it's not the exact location of where Kjartan and Botli fell in love with Gudrun, but... But still a very relaxing place. It, well, it's from the same source, mm-hmm. at least. Um, but So you can go and stay at Laugar, at a hotel there, and you can go bathe at uh, the hot spring or the bath um, if you want to. Um, but anyway, if you're, if you're on this road, you're going to go past Laugar and Tunga as you head north into the valley. And while the scenery in this rather shallow valley isn't particularly remarkable, warning, uh, I do encourage you to drive slowly all the same and let your imagination run wild as you think about Botley and the Osrisons lying in wait for Kjartan as he comes south. I feel like this is getting very specific. Did you drive through the valley on your trip in August? No, regrettably. Uh, we, did, we didn't have time to drive that way. Though <laughs> what the hell we, are you talking about? <laughs> we did. We, well, you know, I looked at the map. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we, we, you know, we drove through uh, Laxerdal twice, and I, I got a good look at the landscape where Kjartan lived. But, mm-hmm. but I now that I've looked at the map, and Westfjords mm-hmm. is my next trip, so yeah. Yeah. I'll be heading back there. I'll look at the Westfjords, and I'll go on this trip, and I'll walk along that path and, and just check it all out, and my imagination will run wild. Uh-huh. But, uh Yeah. Anyway, let's get to it. The ambush is set. What's Kjartan up to? Well, let's see. Last time we saw him, he was collecting the homespun for Thrala Chatterbox, and he's on his way home with 11 companions. 11 companions, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he rode out to Sauber with just Aun the Black, now Aun Twigbelly, and Thorarin. But Aun insisted that he ride home with her brothers, Thorkel Pup and Knut, and I guess a bunch of other guys as well. Right. So at least Kjartan has the numbers advantage when he encounters the nine men waiting to ambush him. No, no, ideally, yes. I mean, that's 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 how it would ideally play out and everything would be fine for him. But as Kjartan enters the part of the valley that widens out, he turns to Thorkel Pup and urges him to head home with his brother. Uh, Thorkel, by the way, insists on sticking with Kjartan at least to the mouth of the valley. So they ride on a bit further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't quite make it to the mouth of the valley, which would right. mean that they were safe. Uh, but <clears throat> Kjartan stops them once again. And he urges Thorkettle and his men to go home. He says, I won't have that thief Thorolf Olsvison laughing at me for being too scared to ride home without protection. Right now, at it, this point, uh, Thorkel Pup reluctantly agrees to let Kjartan continue on with just Aun Twigbelly and Thororin. <laughs> Although he notes that he's going to feel really terrible if anything bad happens after they leave. I really wish we hadn't retired that foreboding sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it would be useful here. Uh Uh-huh. Well, Kjartan shakes it off, confident that he can handle anything that might come up. I don't think my kinsman Botley will be out to kill me. And if the Olsvifsons have something planned, well, the outcome is anything but certain, even if I am a little outnumbered. Yeah, so let's uh let's let's look up our proverbs. I got my proverb book here. Uh, oh, you here do? It is. Oh, do you? Yes. 
Under P, uh, pride goeth before <laughs> destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Ah, okay. I want to get a copy of that, Garton. Well, he's a new Christian, John. He might have figured out fasting and prayer and Christmas and Easter, but mm-hmm. I guess he's still working on all the other stuff. Well, I feel like the other stuff might be more helpful at this moment, but okay. All right. Uh, so Thorkel Pup and his crew head home, leaving Kjartan with just two supporters, just Alan Twigbelly and Thorarin. Yeah. And as they ride forward, a man called Thorkettl is riding along the ridgeline with his shepherd, looking for their horses when they spot Botli and the Osvisons lying in wait as Kjartan rides down the valley in their direction. Thorkel, you say? Yeah, Thorkettl and his shepherd. But not Thorkel Pup. Another Thorkel. That's right, yes. It's it's unfortunate, but yes. Yeah. It's uh, very clear to both Thorkettl and his shepherd that the men of Laugar are preparing to ambush Kjartan. Now, the shepherd, like the reader, is thinking, hey, <laughs> we could change the course of this whole event if we just ride down there, intercept Kjartan before he rides into the trap, and warn him. Right, but Thorkettl is no fan of Kjartan. Um, he says, Shut up, you. Do you really think you can change the fate of a doomed man? And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't mind seeing them do whatever damage they can to one another. Hmm. <laughs> he's... Thor- they're not going to help, are they? They're just going to watch. No, Thorkel isn't a fan of either side, and he's keen to see a good fight. All right, well, thanks a lot for nothing, Thorkel. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I think it does speak to the complicated nature of politics and attitudes towards the wealthy in this right. uh, in this area. But yeah, uh, I mean, what reason does this guy have to particularly care which one of them wins this fight? Well, probably because they're both a thorn in his side. No matter right. who wins, it right. sucks for him, right? Seeing both of them cut down a little bit, both of them suffering losses would actually only be to the benefit of everyone else in the region. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting character to insert because he mm-hmm. really doesn't play any role going forward. He's kind of like the casual... Uh, working-class observer of this uh, right. upper-class warfare. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So anyway, meanwhile, the Olsufsons the are growing concerned. What are they concerned about, John? Well, Boltley's there, and they wonder just how committed to the plan he is. Because <laughs> when they look at him high on the hill, they think he's purposefully positioned himself in a spot that Kjartan will easily see as he rides south, warning him about the ambush. Right. It suggests one of two things. Uh, one is that Botley is just, you know, garbage at ambush and doesn't realize <laughs> where he's positioned himself. That can't But be. I think the more likely possibility is that Botley might not be as eager to attack Kjartan as he led on when they left Lauger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does suggest that, but we don't really know what Botley is feeling. Whatever the case, the Olsvisons are worried that he's about to betray them. So, in another moment of kind of like a cool realism in the saga, mm-hmm. they they walk up the slope to where Boltley is waiting, and they start to play wrestle with him. Yeah, Boltley thinks they're just messing around, but they're actually trying to reposition him further down the slope, which they do by grabbing him by the feet and dragging him off the hilltop. Yeah. I mean, again, it, if you want to make this into a movie, this is a great scene to do. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Because you got you got Kjartan mm-hmm. riding south along the valley. He's by himself. Well, not by himself. He's with two other guys now. Right. And then you have the Olsvifsons play wrestling with Boltley and dragging him purposefully down right. the hill. I mean, if you're doing a movie, the way you do this is that uh, Kjartan is looking the other way. And over his shoulder, you see Boltley up on the hilltop 
and the Uzzlesons pull him down and drag him away, just as Kjartan turns and looks. Yeah, yeah. It, it can be very there's, cool. your, there's your movie moment right there. So Kjartan and his companions, two of them, uh, ride forward rather quickly. And as soon as they reach the ravine, they spot the ambushers. So despite everything, I mean, well, mm-hmm. they're in the ravine, so they're revealed, I guess. Right. Um, so Kjartan sees them and he leaps off his horse and he steps forward to face his attackers. Now, according to the saga, this takes place near a very large rock. Mm-hmm. And going back to those of you planning to explore this area, there is a spot marked Kjartanstein on Google Maps. But the spot doesn't quite match the description of where the ambush was set at Hafragil, the ravine that looks it looks to be a good bit further south on Vestjarvegar. I mean, this is a saga written, what, in the mid-13th century, right? Yeah. Uh, about an event that may or may not have happened a few years into the 11th century. Yes. I, I think we can assume that the authors, whether they're composers of the old tradition or the writers who crafted the sagas, they, we can assume that they adapt their narratives to the landscape of their time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, right? I, I imagine the story of this ambush had to evolve to fit the landscape of Svinadalar as the storytellers knew it. That enhances the realism by tying the action to topographical features and landmarks of their world that they live in. There is a boulder standing on top of a small mound in Svinadalar that loosely fits the description of the spot where Kjartan chooses to meet his attackers. But mm-hmm. once again, we have to leave it to the minds of the travelers through that valley to imagine the where and the how of Kjartan's clash with Boltley and the Olsvissons. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, Kjartan and the Olsvissons rush toward each other, mm-hmm. but before they meet, Kjartan lets fly his spear. It strikes the shield of Thorolf with such force that the point of the spear cuts through the wood and then pierces Thorolf's arm just above the elbow, severing the biceps muscle and rendering Thorolf's shield arm useless. Yeah. It's a good start to the battle for Kjartan, who then moves forward with his sword drawn. Yeah, but in less good starts to the battle, uh, it's not King's Gift that he's carrying. Right? The, the sword that it was uh, prophesied to be protection against harm for him. Mm-hmm. Kjartan decided to put that sword away after it was found that it's scabbard after Thorolf stole it. Right. He's just got this irregular sword here, but... Yeah. But that doesn't matter much as he approaches the Olsvissons and Gutlaug. Right. Meanwhile, the sons of Thoratla Chatterbox have circled around Kjartan to get at Thororin. They've been told to tackle him and hold him down as best they can, but it's a tough fight because it turns out Thororin is actually quite strong. Right. We, we've been talking about him as being sort of, you know, not that important, but it turns out he's, he's, he's a burly guy. Mm-hmm. But two of them together are managing well enough leaving only Kjartan and Alan Twigbelly for the Oswissons and Boltley. And speaking of Boltley, he's there, but he doesn't get involved. Instead, he stands back and watches, his hand on the hilt of the sword legbiter. Aun does his best to protect Kjartan, but it's difficult with so many combatants coming at them. It's two against nine. Well, I guess two against seven at this point. Right. There's an interesting detail in there about the fight that says Kjartan dealt such heavy blows against the Oswissons that he had to stop several times to straighten the sword after he'd bent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a rare moment of realism in a medieval sword fight right, that highlights the limits of the technology they're using. 
It underscores the importance of the absence of King's Gift, but it's also just the reality of a subpar sword that would kind of bend and twist as the, as the battle would go on. Yeah. I mean, surely if, if Kjartan had brought King's Gift, which we're told is a superior sword in every regard, he would not be having this problem, right? He'd be able to slice through the Oswesons with relative ease. Exactly, and all would be well. But even though he's working with an inferior sword, Kjartan manages to wound several of the Oswesons without getting a scratch himself. He fights so brilliantly, in fact, that the Oswesons are forced to give ground and fall back and reconsider their plan. Mm-hmm. In other words, even though they have the numbers, it's not going well for them against this man's no. man. No, and, and when they realize that things are too difficult with Kjartan, they turn their attention to Alan. Uh-oh. Yeah, he's already been wounded in the fight, and of course he's the weaker opponent. So the Oswesons now attack him in force. He puts up a good fight and defends himself as best he can against their relentless onslaught, but in the end, he finds himself... now. Tell me if you saw this coming. With his belly slit open and his entrails exposed. Uh-oh. Yeah. So Aun Twigbelly falls, no doubt recalling his prophetic dream as he hits the ground. At the same time, Kjartan is battling Gutlaug. Right. And remind us, who's Gutlaug again? Well, he's the cousin of the Oswifsons. That's right. That's right. But don't uh, don't worry about getting him to know him too well. Kjartan severs his leg above the knee very quickly, <laughs> a wound which proves fatal for young Gudlaug. Oh, dear. Gudlaug, we hardly knew ye. Quite, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at this point, Aun Twigbelly is down. Gudlaug is dead. Thorolf Oswifsson can't use his shield arm, and Thorarin is being held down by Thorhatless kids. That's right. And with Aun no longer protecting him... Uh, Kjartan is alone, and so four of the Oswesons now turn and attack Kjartan. But even without Aun to inter, uh, yeah. But even without Aun to interfere, Kjartan defends himself valiantly, frustrating the Oswesons at every blow. Mm. And then Kjartan turns to look at Botley, and he calls out, "Why did you leave home, kinsman? If you just intended to stand there and watch, pretty soon you'll have to decide which side you're on." And then see what Legbiter can really do. Right, and, and Botley still is adopting his technique of ignoring everyone and pretending he can't hear them. <laughs> uh, he pretends he doesn't hear the taunt, and this enrages Osbeck, who realizes that they simply can't beat Kjartan on their own. Mm-hmm. He does everything he can to encourage Botley and in, incite him to, in, to, to join in the fight, really. Listen to me, Botley. Kjartan has proven hard enough to handle, even when we've done much less than this to offend him. If he manages to escape now, you'll be in as much trouble as us, Spotly. Do something! And finally, with that kind of provocation, Botley draws Legbiter and steps toward Kjartan. Hmm. I guess it's about time. But I have to say I love the way the author builds to this moment. Mm-hmm. Kjartan sees Botley finally coming at him, and he says... This is a vile thing you're about to do, kinsman. That much is certain. But I'd rather receive my death at your hand than cause yours. At that moment, Kjartan throws down his weapons and refuses to fight any more. That's the old Obi-Wan Kenobi technique. What's that? Throwing your weapon down and accepting a death blow from your enemy who used to be your best friend. Right? It's the, the Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay. Sure. And uh, like Darth Vader, Boltley says nothing. He just steps forward, deals the death blow, 
Only Kjartan doesn't disappear. His body collapses to the earth. Yeah, now Botley regrets this deed immediately. He's overcome with emotion. Mm -hmm. He slumps down to the ground and he cradles Kjartan's body as Kjartan breathes his last breath. He declares himself on the spot to be the slayer of Kjartan, accepting full legal responsibility for the killing. And then he tells the Oswesons to go home to Lauger. He will stay with the body of the fallen. Yeah. John, I, I don't know what your experience was with this, but when I read this text, especially if I've mm-hmm. been following it closely <laughs> like we're supposed to and appreciating the different characters and their motivations and all that's going on, this moment, even now, so many years into our studies of the sagas and mm-hmm. our reading of Laxdala Saga, which we've studied before, it still gets me, man. This is a heavy moment. I still get touched by this. How about you? I I accept that you do. Oh, okay. All right, uh, then. I think, honestly, me. you know, we've talked about this before. I think, um, ultimately, my sympathies in this moment are, if they're with anybody, they're with Botley, but um, they aren't really with either one of them. Hmm, interesting. They've both kind of lay, made the bed for themselves that they're now lying in. That's very interesting. Uh, these are These are two men who have you know, essentially destroyed what should have been a strong alliance and friendship yeah. over fairly petty reasons mm-hmm. uh, and now are sort of reaping the whirlwind of what they've done. I, think uh, I, I recognize the pathos of it, yeah, certainly. But am I personally moved? I'm going to save that for, you know, something like Gretter's death. Oh, um, you know. Gretter? Absolutely. No, the worst I, but, of all the saga characters we've studied? No, but but his death is a sad moment, right? A a man who dies after all of his attempts, all of his fear of being alone, who dies alone, yeah, surrounded by his enemies, uh, being hacked down and being hacked to pieces even after his death. That's that's tragedy. That's sad. No, this What's... is two men who have behaved like children for a very long time, <laughs> suddenly realizing that there are adult consequences no. for their actions. No. I I, <laughs> I I think you're 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 very wrong about that. Uh, there there are two men who have tried to make their way in the world as best mm-hmm. they can. They have followed their own instincts, and by doing so, they have each put themselves in a position that forces them into this unsolvable puzzle. This is I, they both have to do what they do. What I admire about Kjartan here is that he puts his weapons down and says, I am not going to harm you because you are my brother. Mm-hmm. That, to me, that is, it is a superior move morally that is just beautiful and touching. And the fact that Boltley goes forward and strikes him down all the same speaks to the conflict within Boltley that he has to step up and do this because there's no way forward only to then drop his sword and cradle the body of his brother and to cry as he breathes his last breath, that's drama, John, and that is deeply touching and moving. How could you so callously disregard the emotion of this moment? And I'm going to remind you that we're only a few days on from Kjartan forcing Botley to poop on his own roof. <laughs> Fair enough. There's, Fair enough. there's been a lot of fairly petty nonsense between these petty two. Petty nonsense. To try I, to now r- raise it up to the heights of pathos 
uh-huh. uh, ignores an awful lot of the behavior between these two to this point. Okay. Well, you I, know. I acknowledge that this moment is meant to be touching, but these two gentlemen, I'm not sure they've earned that moment of pathos. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, doesn't mean that I don't find it to be a sad moment and a touching moment, but give me, I think there are a number of figures whose deaths are far more tragic. Give me Nyal going oh, yeah. to bed with his wife and his grandchild as the yeah. house burns down around him. That's the best. Uh, give me uh, Kari uh, escaping from a burning home to avenge his brothers-in-law and his own son. Uh, Look, we can list out kind of tragedy. We, we can list out any number of examples of moving, passionate moments, emotional yes, moments. And in this the would not be on it. <laughs> it would. You're crazy. <laughs> All right. You're crazy. These how many movies have been made and books have been made after this one that are mm-hmm. about two guys who are very very deeply close friends. Yes. Who end up fighting against each other and still love each other. Understood. And yet they're forced by the circumstances of the wor- the but- the situation they've created. You're absolutely right. They have created this. Mm-hmm. And yet they that that love for each other is still there. It's still present. That's what hits so, me. So your I argument is the fact that this one came first is significant? No, no. I mean, I'm there saying are it's, cave it's, paintings in France that are very impressive, but they ain't the Mona Lisa, Andy. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's a tried and true trope, and it, uh-huh. it for whatever reason, it gets me, man. And All I'm right. sorry I'm sorry if I'm too sensitive for you. <laughs> Not everyone can be a hairy, hyper-masculine uh, wow. John Sexton, okay? That's right. That's right. That's what's going to say on my gravestone. I'm sorry I feel. and hyper-masculine. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would take issue with that. But anyway. <laughs> all right, oh, mo- I am Harry. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, all right. Moving this story along. The, uh, yes, please. You know, he told the Oswestons to go home. So mm-hmm. they do. They make their way home and they report everything to Gudrun. And uh, as you'd expect, she's quite pleased by the outcome. They bandage Thorolf's arm as best they can, but uh, it never really heals properly. Boltley returns to Lauger, but only after he's accompanied Kjartan's body to Thorin's farm at Tunga. And as he rides toward the farm at Lauger, Gudrun comes out to greet him with a smile, and she says, Well, our morning chores make an uneven match. I've only spun twelve ells of yarn, and you've managed to kill Kjartan. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a cruel thing to say, given mm-hmm. how Boltley feels about Kjartan. And given that he has, you know, and this speaks back to your point about the, the pathos situation. I mean, the man still has uh, Kjartan's bloodstains on his hands and tears running down his cheeks. Yeah. Uh, but Gudrun's gotten exactly what she wanted. She did. Uh, Boltley is crushed and tells her, I won't soon forget this terrible misfortune, even without you to remind me of it. Gudrun, who's always calculating, says, I wouldn't consider this misfortune, Bodhi. To my mind, you were held in much higher esteem the winter that Kjartan was still in Norway. What's your status been since he's gotten home and walked all over you? Yeah, now she's not wrong. I mean, she's cruel, but she's right. not wrong. Especially in this moment to say that. But uh, yeah. And she continues. She's not done. And last, but most important to me, I think, 
is the thought that Hrefna won't go to bed with a smile on her face tonight. Right, and there you have it, right? I mean, this is as much a feud between Guthrin and Hrefna yeah. uh, as it is a feud between Botley and Kjartan, perhaps even more so. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, honestly, a feud between Guthrin and Kjartan. Sure. And Hrefna and Botley are both in there as uh, as Loka, right? As, Absolutely. As, uh, people who have just gotten dragged into a fight between two people who feel themselves to be jilted lovers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Guthrin in this moment can't stand the idea of a woman having the man that she wanted, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a better man or a higher status man or lower status man or whatever. Right, this is the man she had chosen for herself, and in the end, she ended up with someone else, and someone else ended up with that man, and that's unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of unpacking we need to do when it comes to Guthrun. I mean, mm-hmm. she is widely regarded and revered as the heroine of the saga. And I think that there is a lot to admire about her, but I think, I think John, we've both got some issues with her. Yeah. I think she's a complicated figure. I agree. Um, And Boltley, by the way, in this moment also has some issues with her. (laughs) Uh, This last comment about her petty joy at Hrevna's terrible sorrow fills him with rage. Honestly, I wonder if she'll pelt the news any more than you. I suspect that you'd be much less upset if it were me lying there on the ground and Kjartan were the one here reporting it to you. Mm. Well, Guthrun realizes suddenly just how deeply all of this has affected Botley. And so she thanks him for what he's done to defend her family and their honor, but she adds, Now I know you won't go against my will. Yeah, see, there it is again, right? Mm-hmm. Anytime you try to rationalize Guthrun's actions uh, and... You sort of want to find her compelling as a protagonist. She does something like that. Well, it's all about control, Johnny. Yeah, no, and again, this is, you know, behavior that in a male figure in the sagas we would probably not blink at. Uh, But the way it's phrased, the way it's framed coming from a woman in the sagas who does not commit violence herself but wields violence through others, right? That's, it jars in a way that male violence tends not to. Uh, Guthrun loves to wield power, and this is a great example of it. Yeah, you're not wrong. Well, and and speaking of master manipulators... Uh, I see what you're doing. Well, as the Oswifsons go into hiding in an underground shelter, Thorhatla's chatterbox's sons are sent to Helgafell to share the news with Snorri Gothi and ask him to send (laughs) assistance right away in case Olaf Peacock has any plans to avenge his son, which he probably will. There he is, Snorri Gothi. Uh, remember, Snorri is a close kinsman of Osvif, and he's provided support, advice, and other kinds of assistance to Osvif and Gudrun in the past. Yes, uh, he even fostered Gudrun's son Thor uh, after his father drowned. That's right. Uh, that's uh, Thor the Cat, remember we said, who helps get rid of the pesky Draugr party at Fold River near the end of Erbidja Saga. Good times, Fold yeah, River. That's right. Oh, ghost seals and whatnot. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> now, we could move on to the final section, but... There is one more thing we need to wrap up here in this section. Oh, yes. I know. Of course, yeah, I'm talking about the fate of Aun Twigbelly, who uh-huh. we last saw trying to hold his own entrails in uh, right. with his shield arm. Yeah. The saga tells us that an incredible thing happened that night at Tunga. The bodies of Kjartan and Aun had been laid out next to each other, and people were assigned to watch over the bodies during the night. And suddenly, in the still of the night... Aun sat bolt upright, frightening the people keeping watch. 
He turns to look at them and says, Fear not, I tell you, in God's name. I was alive and in my right mind up until the moment I lost consciousness. Then I dreamed that this same woman came to me as before. Only now she removed the twigs from my stomach and replaced them with my entrails again. And after that, I became whole again. He's alive! It's a miracle! Well, it's something anyway. Uh, so they, they bind up his wounds, and Aun actually heals up quite nicely. Good for him. Yeah, but as you'd expect, he's forever known as Aun Twigbelly after this. Nicknames! Yeah. Now, I feel like we've covered the origins of his name already, though. Yeah, we did. This is just uh, that last part of the story. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, Kjartan is dead. Boltley is sad. Gudrun is happy. And, and the Aun is fantastic. Aun's feeling well. Uh, and the Alzersums are hiding underground. This saga is really cooking now, John. I wonder if there will be any repercussions for the slaying of Kjartan. Well, wonder no more. Part 36. Repercussions and ramifications. Hmm. Sounds like there will be some repercussions. I mean, you know, one or two. One or two. Well, we, we should... I think, take a moment at the start of this final section of the episode to revisit a few prophecies, John. Are you... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now that they've come to fruition, it makes sense to look back at them, but can we keep it brief, please? Only briefly, of course, in the truest Mm -hmm. saga thing fashion. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) let's uh, let's start with the first prophecy. The one connected to Botley's sword, Legbiter. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, we are first introduced to Legbiter, or uh, Beater when we meet Germund in Chapter 29. It is mm-hmm. described as a fine weapon with a hilt of walrus ivory. Uh, it has no silver overlay, but the blade is sharp and flawless. Mm-hmm. Legbiter is Germund's most prized possession. Just a quick question. Okay, yeah. What's Is this your idea of briefly? Hmm? A full, complete, and loving description of the sword? Well... <laughs> I mean, I see where, you, where you're coming from, but uh, given the sword's prominence in this narrative and the uh, dramatic tension it brings to Boltley's relationship with Kjartan, I uh-huh. thought it was worth remembering that description. Maybe you don't feel the same on. way? Okay, all right. <laughs> I was just getting to the prophecy anyway, so... Yeah, I'm sure you were. I was! Uh-huh. So there. Now, if you recall, Germund married Thurid, the daughter of Olaf Peacock and Thorgerd. It was an unhappy marriage that ended when Germund decided to leave Thorid and their newborn daughter in Iceland, while he returned to Norway for a little bit of uh, bachelor-like adventuring. (laughs) Now, Thorid uh, didn't take kindly to this, and so she sailed out to catch his ship, snuck aboard under the cover of darkness, and stole Legbiter from Germund while he was sleeping. Well, now, wait a minute. Yes, he did. she did, but don't forget what she left in its place. Oh, yes. She left their daughter with Germund. Right. He, uh, he, he lost a sword, but gained a daughter. <laughs> right. Uh, and he wasn't too happy about that. No, not at all. Uh, he woke up and realized what had happened, and he shouted for Thor to come back and return the sword. Right, and to take their daughter back. Yes. <laughs> he had no interest in being a father to the kid. Not at all. But uh, Thurid refuses, and as she sails away, Germund lays a curse on the sword, saying that it would be the death of that man and her family that will be most missed 
and least deserved it. Now, least deserves it is interesting. Mm-hmm. I think there's an argument to be made that Kjartan may have deserved it. Oh, come on, John. I got to disagree with you there. Well, I, we can debate that a little later on. I have a feeling that this is the guy we're summoning today. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, for now, all we have to say is that Thurid gave Legbiter to Botley, and as they say, the rest is history. Oh, absolutely. Now, the other prophecy worth mentioning here comes mm-hmm. quick on the heels of the Legbiter curse. In fact, it happens in the next chapter. Is this the, this is the dream about Hari the ox and his mother? Yes, and we, we did comment at the time, uh, a couple episodes back, that mm-hmm. all of these prophecies kind of come uh, one on top of the other very, very right. quickly. And it feels awkward at the time, but it does pay off dramatically over the course of this whole narrative. Um, so remember now, Hauri was a dapple gray ox who had four horns, two large and normal ones, and then the other two coming straight out of his forehead, kind of perpendicular mm-hmm. to the others. So Hauri lives for 18 years, which is quite a long time, using his special horn as an icebreaker to get at the good grass in the wintertime. But when that horn finally falls off, Olaf Peacock has the ox slaughtered in the autumn to be eaten uh, over the winter. This prompts a dream in which Olaf was visited by Hauri's mother, who chided him for sending Hauri to her disfigured the cost of this disrespectful act, she promised, would be that Olaf himself should live to see his own son covered in blood. Right, and and that dream deeply affected Olaf. Yeah. From that day forward, his fear of that prophecy coming true affected almost all of his decisions, mm-hmm. right? especially when it comes to anything that might affect Kjartan. That's right, yeah, which is why he warns uh, Kjartan against uh, mm-hmm. fraternizing with Gudrun um, at the uh, the old hot tub. But, uh, right. yeah, it didn't work out so well. So Olaf, I think, you know, he's he's always been more interested in growing his reputation through expenditures than through violence. But yeah. I think it's interesting that after that prophecy, he becomes particularly conflict-averse, um, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean— you know, it's the mother of a, an ox. He was visited by a cow, which is a little distressing. Uh, if you want to put it that way, I maybe. I mean, a talking cow with a vendetta, maybe? <laughs> it sounds <laughs> odd, but but no, wait a minute. The saga says that Olaf was visited by an angry woman. But it doesn't say what kind of woman. It doesn't say human. Well, it doesn't say cow either. I think that would be noteworthy and worth mentioning. Hey, you read it your way, I'll read it mine. I don't see species, Andy. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Fine. Well, as much as Olaf has chosen to maintain peace and avoid violence in an effort to avert the angry woman's prophecy, bovine or otherwise, Mm -hmm. uh, that is all at an end now. The news of Kjartan's death arrives and hits Olaf particularly hard. Right, I mean, it hits Olaf's other sons hard as well, and they're eager to ride out at once and avenge their brother's death. Yeah. Olaf has at least four other sons, mm-hmm. including Haltor, Steinthor, Helgi, and Hoskult. Now, going forward, they're going to be working together as the Olafsons with Haltor um, serving as their leader. That's right. Now, but well, the Olafsons' anger is focused on Botli initially, but their father refuses to let them move against their foster brother. Mm-hmm. He says, it's no compensation for Kjartan if Baltli were to be killed, though I loved your brother more dearly than any other person. Uh, 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 gee, thanks, Dad. 
Oh, ooh. <laughs> well, uh, moving on. I simply won't agree to any plan that involves harming Botley. That said, I've got something more worthwhile for you boys to do. I want you to move quickly and chase down those two sons of Thorhotla that were sent to Helgafell to gather forces against us. Whatever you do to punish those boys will be pleasing to me. Mm. And with that very clear and direct mission, mm-hmm. the Olafsons set out in pursuit of Stain and Odd. Right, and these are the guys who held Thorarin down during the fight with Kjartan. Yeah. I, to me, they, you know, they're not exactly the most attractive targets for avenging their brother, but it is a decent place to start. Well, Andy, I don't know if you've uh, if you if you're familiar with the game of chess. I have played. But you got to clear a few pawns before you get to the king. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that's the idea here. And the Olafsons make quick progress on this task. They catch a good wind and sail with speed to the Skori Island just north of Helgafell. Mm-hmm. And they ask around and soon spot Stain and Old rowing a boat. Rowing a boat down from the north of the fjord. Haltor and his brothers chase them down. They board their ship with little resistance mm-hmm. and then easily dispatch both Stain and Ald and throw their bodies overboard. Mission accomplished. I mean, it's not exactly the climactic revenge scene they might have been hoping for, and that isn't helped by you calling it dispatching when they murder them. Well, I, they... But it's a start. What does dispatching start. mean to you? I mean, you know, it just sounds rather clinical. Uh, <laughs> well, they hack them to pieces, Andy. Uh, they're given barely two sentences for this whole they, sequence in the they, saga. They set it up so they sleep with the fishes. They do. Uh, and not long after this, uh, Kjartan's body is returned home to Hjotherholt. Mm-hmm. Olaf has a tent raised over the body because there's no church yet in the district. Now remember that uh, Kjartan has converted to Christianity while he was over in Norway. And of course, Iceland is now Christian as well. And then after welcoming his son home for the last time, Olaf gets busy. First, since riders out to ask Thorsten Egelson to his, for his support in the coming lawsuit. Right, this is his brother-in-law. Remember that Olaf is married to Thorger Egel's daughter, the mm-hmm. daughter of Egel Skallagrimson. He also calls upon the aid of his son-in-law Guðmund, uh, Thorin's husband, and the sons of Askir Scatterbrain, especially Kjartan's good friend Kalf. Yes. Now Olaf follows procedure and declares all participants in the attack guilty of slaying Kjartan except for Osbach, who had previously been convicted of seducing and abducting the daughter of Ljot Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just comes into the saga yeah, right, it's at, kind of, yeah, right at that moment. point that it just going to slip by us until now. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, right, so uh, since Osbach is already an outlaw, he isn't subject to the law at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a small detail like that that yeah. suggests to me that there's some element of truth in all that's happening here. Because why else would you include that detail all of a sudden out of nowhere <laughs> that Osbeck isn't included in... It's a touch random. Yeah, it's it's just a little too weird. So mm-hmm. it has to be like, you know, oh, well, Osbeck was already an outlaw, therefore right. he wasn't included, and everybody knows that. I, right. Unless they're thinking of another text, right? yeah, another, another story tradition in which Osbeck has been outlawed. Yeah, yeah. That, that's possible, but uh, whatever the case, it's been open season on Osbeck for a while now, so he yeah. can't be included in the lawsuit. Right. Uh, so soon after this, Olaf receives word that Thorsten Aelson and Guðmund have both gathered large bands of men to support him in whatever way he sees fit. Olaf then sends word around the district asking all of his neighbors for support as well. Yeah, and when they're all gathered, he sends them off to Laugar, but he insists... 
that everyone promised to protect Boltley to the best of their ability, no doubt expecting men from other districts to be there and and to be just as eager to avenge Kjartan. And he's not wrong about that. Uh, Kalf Asgerson and Hal Gudmundsson, who are both good friends of Kjartan, are very angry when they hear about Olaf's mandate on Botley. But honestly, there isn't much they can do about it. Yeah, um, just to clarify, Kalf is Kjartan's brother-in-law, and Hal is Kjartan's nephew. Mm-hmm. Yes, and between them and Kjartan's own brothers, there's a lot of interest in killing Botley and the Oswesons. Yes. But as you said, Olaf's in charge, and he forbids it. Yeah. And with that understanding in place, Olaf sends messengers to Olsvif asking for a meeting of conciliation and terms for a settlement. Mm-hmm. Now, Botley agrees that Olaf should decide the terms of the settlement because, well, Botley is Olsvif's foster son, and right. why wouldn't he? And Olsvif sees no hope of winning, so he agrees too. Now, why doesn't Olsvif see any hope of winning? Where's his support? Because he's got some. Well, I mean, it looks like either Snorri Gothi didn't get the message, or mm-hmm. he just refused to send the support that Oswif had requested. No, I, I think it's the former. Do um, you, though? Well, you know, I like to think that uh, Snorri doesn't forget his friends. Okay. Uh, remember, Aud and Stain were supposed to carry that message, right? And they were killed by the Oswissons. Uh-huh. But were they killed on the way there or, or on the way back? Is it clear? I think it's I think it's strongly implied that they never made it to Snorri's farm on Helgefell. Well, probably. I mean, they were they were rowing south mm-hmm. in the fjord. They were yeah. coming from the north, yeah. so it would imply they're the, heading towards. The map towards. suggests that they were still en route. And you know, I love a map. So, the conciliation meeting is set, and it is agreed that Olaf should declare the penalties that he sees fit for all the participants, be it fines or outlawry, and. These penalties should be announced at the Thorsness thing. Yeah, it's a tough situation for Oswif, really. It is. The future yeah. of his entire family now rests in Olaf's hands. Yeah, but that's what happens when you oppose powerful men and mm-hmm. force... you force When you force powerful men to act against you, John, what do you expect? Okay, but in his defense, Oswif didn't force anyone to do anything. He's barely been a part of the story. But his sons, his sons <laughs> okay, and his, 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 his sons, daughter. still hard on him. It's, yes, it's hard on him. Uh, but, you know, control yes, your family. No, right. So the meeting comes to its conclusion. And the penalties, we'll get to those a little bit later. For now, everyone rides home. And here's where we learn that Hrefna is absolutely destroyed by the death of Kjartan. <clears throat> Finally. Poor Hrepna is so badly ignored in this whole narrative. Yeah, and we're told that she puts on a good face despite the tragedy, but, uh, you know, she maintains a dignified and courteous manner going forward. Good for her. Uh, Thorsten Kugason, uh, who married the daughter of Kjartan's sister Thorbjörg, offers to foster uh, Hrepna's son by Kjartan, which she accepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Asger Kjartansson, like we said mm-hmm. earlier. He does exist. He's Kjartan's son, but as much as we might want him to, he doesn't get involved in any way, rather sadly. Yeah, no, he's out of the saga. And for that matter, so is Hrefna. Mm-hmm. She moves north to live with her family and never really recovers from the loss. She dies not long after, and some people say that she died of a broken heart. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Now, we are almost done here for this episode. There's just the matter of Kjartan's body. 
Before the Thorsnes thing, Thorstein Eilson has a church built at Borg. And once it's finished, the body of Kjartan is moved from the tent at Hjarderholt and buried in the graveyard at the newly consecrated church, the very first church at Borg. Right, and that's the same church, I believe, that you will find appearing at the end of Ail's saga. Mm-hmm. Isn't this the church where, theoretically, Ail's body is moved uh, some years after his death? That's quite right. When the Thor's Nest thing comes about, uh, Olaf announces the penalties for the slaying. Remember, he's been given self-judgment on this. All of the Oswestons are sentenced to outlawry, although arrangements are made to allow them free passage out of the country. Uh, it's a kind gesture, but... How long is this outlawry going to be? Is it a full outlawry? Minor outlawry? No, it's it's full. Uh, but it's agreed that their exile will last only as long as the Olafsons and Asger Kjartansson are alive. Well, I mean, that's essentially full outlawry. It's their whole lives. <laughs> Asger Kjartansson is the son of Kjartan and very, very young at this point. Come on. I mean, sure, but you know how things go in Iceland. Between the feud culture and the harsh environment... People don't always get the pleasure of living long and full lives. Not everyone gets the three score and ten guaranteed to them. Fair, fair. All right. Uh, well, then, what about Botley? He asked knowingly. Oh, you mean the guy who actually struck the killing blow and claimed it publicly? Yeah, I mean, everyone else got some pretty harsh penalties. What about the guy uh, who actually killed him? Yeah, Olaf doesn't want Botley to be outlawed. Oh. Instead, he just pronounces a fine as Botley's penalty. Well... I mean, I would be pretty ticked off if I'm one of the Oswestons after I hear that. Oh, I'm sure they aren't pleased to see Botley getting off so easy. But the Olafsons are even more upset by their father's decision, especially Hutlor and Steinthor. But Olaf insists and declares that no one may seek redress against Botley for the killing of Kjartan as long as he's alive. I see. Well, that is a problem that will solve itself soon enough. Olaf is no spring chicken, John. No, he's not. All right. So uh, the Oswifsons are outlawed. The Olafsons are ticked off by the uh, mm-hmm. mildness of the penalty. But uh, how do the Oswifsons fare in their exile? And well enough, I suppose. The saga tells us they never return to Iceland. And that's all we hear about it fine with me. Uh, and now as for Olaf Peacock, everyone appreciates the way that he handled this case and you'll be shocked to hear he earns even more respect throughout Iceland. It's a bad habit. He's quite a guy. He encourages Boltley to buy the property at Tunga as he had planned at the start of this mess and Boltley does. So he's now he's got that farm. Right. And I imagine Thorarin is pretty pleased with this outcome. Why? Because uh, he, he wanted to sell it to Boltley in the first place. I'm sure, but I was thinking of the fact that he's essentially getting paid twice for the same farm. <laughs> yeah. Now, remember, he'd already traveled with Kjartan up to Saubra to take over the debts owed there. Yes. He can collect on those and collect the price of the farm from Botley. So he really comes out on top here. Well, I mean, good for him, given all the trouble he went through. Um, True. And, and for now, everything remains calm. Right, because Olaf is alive to maintain the peace. Mm-hmm. But you said he's no spring chicken, and surely no one has forgotten Botley's role in Kjartan's death. Oh, absolutely not. Olaf is getting older. He lives for only three years after the slaying of Kjartan. And after his death, his property is divided up among his sons, with Hatdor taking over the ownership of Hjartarholt. Uh, their mother Thorgerth stays there with Hatdor, 
and both of them are harboring a deep-seated resentment toward Boltley. Can't imagine why. Hmm. I mean, Thorgard is Ale's daughter. I don't think she's the type to let this kind of thing go. Oh, she's not. And neither is Hotdor. But uh, that is a story for another time. Excellent. Okay. Now, before we move on to the summons, I got one more thing for us to do. Oh, why? well, why not? Let's do it. Well, we started this section by looking at the prophecies that affected Kjartan. Mm, yes. I think it's only right that we end with one more prophecy from earlier in this text. A little bit of foreshadowing. I see. Yes, a nice way it's post-shadowing. To, well, no, this is a, a really nice way to set up the next episode, a little teaser, if you will. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We've, we've, we've covered the prophecies that foretold the death of Kjartan, but now it's time to revisit Gudrun's prophetic dreams about the fates of her husbands. Mm-hmm. Back in chapter 33, Gudrun was having trouble interpreting some dreams, but well... She claims she's having trouble. <laughs> right. We, we, as we said, there may be something more to it than that. She may be helping to shape her own destiny. I think here. you think that. I don't know that I do. Well, yeah, but uh, I, and so I reassert it. Okay, well, you're, uh, you're welcome to. But uh, in that moment, she's recounting her dreams, uh, and she is in the first dream. She's standing by a stream and wearing a tall headdress that we're told doesn't suit her at all. She wants to get rid of the headdress, but everyone tells her to keep it. Gudrun refuses to listen and tears the headdress from her head and throws it into the stream. Yeah. Uh, this dream tells of her marriage to Thorvald, which ended when she designed a low-cut blouse for him to wear and divorced him on charges that he was too effeminate. Right. Her second dream concerned the fate of Thord and Gunnarsson, her second husband. In this dream, she was standing by a lake... There was a silver ring on her arm that suited her fairly well. She liked this arm ring so much that she hoped to wear it and care for it for the rest of her life. But the ring suddenly and unexpectedly slipped from her arm and fell into the deep lake, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. And yes, as we know, Thorth drowned on his way home from dealing with Kaltkel and that whole situation for his mm-hmm. mother. I believe Coltkell and his family uh, responded to that visit by mounting a scaffold and chanting up a storm that overwhelmed Thor's ship and drowned him. Right. Some of you may remember this is the episode lull with the, uh, the, the sorcerers. Yeah. Uh, now, right, this brings us to the third dream. Yeah, and her third husband, a fella called Boltley Thorlikson. Uh, what do we have to look forward to with our good friend Boltley, according to these dreams? Well... In the third dream, Gudrun is wearing a gold ring on her arm. Okay. So an upgrade from the silver ring. Sure. She likes it well enough and feels like it makes up for the loss of the silver ring from the last dream. But all the same, she doesn't like it nearly as much. Even though its gold is supposed to be better than the silver of the previous ring. Poor Botley. Well, it gets worse, as you know. Suddenly, Gudrun trips. And as she reaches out to catch herself, the gold ring strikes hard against a stone and breaks in two. When she picks up the pieces, she notices that there's blood seeping from the pieces. Mm-hmm. The loss of the ring fills her with grief at first, but the more she looks at the pieces, the more she notices the many flaws in the ring. All the same, she awakens with the feeling that the ring may have survived if she had been more careful. This is all very interesting. Although, I, I gotta say, the ring splitting into two pieces doesn't bode well for our man Botley. No, no it doesn't. 
But that's a story for the next time. Uh, for now, I think we've come to a good stopping place in the narrative. Mm. Kjartan's dead at the hands of his kinsmen, and while Olaf Peacock has done his best to protect his foster son Baltly from those who would avenge Kjartan, Olaf is now dead, and any promises to avoid conflict with Baltly out of respect for Olaf are no longer binding. Yes. Between that setup and Guthrun's prophetic dream, I feel like Baldy's going to have a hell of a time in our next episode. Indeed. But that's for next time. Exciting stuff. All right, John. I think it's time we uh, summon one of the saga's major players. Are you ready? Oh, absolutely. Summons to the court. Kjartan Olafsson. Kjartan, Kjartan, Kjartan. I am sorry that we've had to summons you in this way so soon after your untimely departure from the narrative. Oh, no, I think he departed the narrative right on time and according to the author's plan. Okay, so soon after your untimely departure from living then. That's better, although I would say, you know, it may have been his time to go anyway. (laughs) Well, it's faded, right? So who are we to say? Right. Well, then welcome, you know. (laughs) All right. I guess it's not untimely. It's right on time. Uh, John, how do you uh, how do you want to do this? I think we've both got a lot to say about Kjartan. We do, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you have a slightly more positive outlook on the guy than I do. Uh, I think that's absolutely right, yes. Okay. Uh, in that case, what I'm thinking is that we're going to change things up a little bit. Instead of just laying out kind of his character and some context, why don't we mm-hmm. each take a position and lay it out for the court with the evidence available? Oh, Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but John, how do we define the positions exactly? I mean, even though I have a generally favorable opinion of Kjartan, my feelings are complicated. I mean, they're feelings. How would they not be? Let's do it yeah. this way. Uh, why don't you lay out your generally favorable impression of Kjartan? Um, feel free to express any complicated feelings you might have, but I want you to focus okay. on the positive. Then I'll follow right. after and um, clean up your mess. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not sure you needed to put it that way. All right. Uh, how about this? I'll follow after and I'll share my thoughts on why Kjartan is a more problematic, maybe less admirable figure than he appears to be. All right. That's fair. All right. Uh, so understand, uh, we both have very complicated attitudes and opinions about Kjartan. We're just going to mm-hmm. take sort of devil's advocate positions here. Sure. All right. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Then by all means, the floor is yours. All right. <clears throat> Friends, Icelanders, listeners, lend me your oh, ears. Boy. I don't think all uh, of that is necessary. We're not looking for soliloquies here. Just a quick opening statement. But I, nope, I've just, got a... Uh, regular prose, please. Shakespearean on, illusions or parody or whatever you're about to do have no place in a serious court, sir. And we are in a serious court today. Uh, fine. Uh, does that mean that I'm going to get to play judge and overrule your approach when you're speaking? Ah, see, sorry. No, I can't allow that. It's uh, it's not oh. within the rules that I've been making up as I go. Well, that's totally unfair. Nevertheless, please proceed in a sensible fashion. You are the absolute worst. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I really, I don't know what you've got planned, but I suspect you plan to read against the grain as best you can. As In fact, as hard as you can. I expect you to be even cruel to Kjartan. <laughs> Well, I just so, said that my job is to be devil's advocate for... Yeah, the- <laughs> but I also know you're impassioned about the subject oh, <laughs> because right. I've talked to you uh, off the podcast and I don't think you like Kjartan at all. Oh, um, I said I'm compli- it's complicated. 
it's complicated. Yeah, and you'll probably choose him as Stingman, but that's, you know, it's, it's, your hatred for a character's never stopped you before, has that's it? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, if you're going to be reading against the grain and I'm going to uh, read with the grain, um, I'm going to stick pretty close to the saga and I'm going to take much of what it presents concerning Kjartan at face value, okay? Right. Your task is then going to be to push back against what I say, however you like. Whatever, whatever right? Mishigas you managed to create in his, in his, uh, in his defense. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. All right, so let's start with Kjartan's very first appearance, uh, where I think you ju- you judge after you hear this. Uh, we're meant to be impressed with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read it once again. Uh, I know we read it before when we first introduced him, but uh, it's a lengthy description and it sets the table quite nicely. Mm-hmm. It says. No fairer or more handsome man has ever been born in Iceland. He had a broad face and regular features, the most beautiful eyes, and a fair complexion. Mm -hmm. His hair was thick, as shiny as silk, and fell in waves. He was a big, strong man, much like his grandfather, Eil, or Thorolf. No man cut a better figure than Kjartan, and people were always struck by his appearance when they saw him. He was a better fighter than most, skilled with his hands, and a top swimmer. He was superior to men in all skills, and yet he was the humblest of men, and so popular that every child loved him. Much like uh, Frosty uh, Jonsson. Very very similar. Of infamous reputation, yes. Yes. uh, And it concludes with, he also had a generous and cheerful disposition. Now, this uh, lengthy quote comes, as most of our lengthy quotes do, from the Kunz translation Mm -hmm. of the saga. Um, Now, John, You and I both know that an introduction like this essentially sets up an ironclad agreement between the author and the audience. Yes. This is our hero. He is as near to perfect as a person can be. He is the poster boy for the pyramid of perfection. He's the most handsome, the most athletic, and the most virtuous. Mm -hmm. And as such, it is agreed from the start that all of his actions should be viewed sympathetically. Sure, it's possible that this intentionally is going to be setting up an unrealistic expectation that the saga can slowly kind of undercut. But honestly, I don't think that's how sagas usually work. I don't think that's how this one's working. Mm -hmm. So as we progress through Kjartan's section of the saga, I think we can see time and time again a sympathetic portrayal of the saga's values through Kjartan. He's constantly put in a position to show his superior character, and we see this most clearly in the Norwegian section, where he's going to prove to be the physical equal of King Olaf Tryggvason. He's going to emerge quickly <laughs> as the leader of the Icelanders in Norway, and he becomes the focal point of King Olaf's conversion efforts there. And then, once he's converted, he's going to help lead the Icelandic faction towards Christianity. And the saga is going to note that he was so popular that no one felt any jealousy towards Kjartan, even as he became the king's clear favorite after the conversion. And we've seen in other sagas, when someone becomes the king's clear favorite, uh, someone's going to try to undercut them. Someone's going to try to attack them. Someone's going to try to sabotage that relationship. But no, everyone, the Norwegians and Icelanders alike, love Kjartan so much that they're just okay with it because it's right. Now, as Boltley is preparing to head back to Iceland, I think it's pretty clear to everyone, including Boltley, that Kjartan has a bright future in the upper echelons of Norway if he wants it. Boltley certainly expects him to embrace that future, which is why he goes home and tries to get Gudrun, right? But here's what I think. I think Kjartan is meant to be a good Icelander to the core. 
He's proud. He's independent. He's stubborn. But he loves his homeland. He's willing to accept the gifts and the honor and the status that Norwegian royalty offers, but he chooses to come home to Iceland in the end, mm. much like Snorri Sturluson did. And in, in Kjartan's case, I think he intends to marry Gudrun, and maybe he always intended. And yet he returns to discover that Boltley's married her. And how does he respond? Well, whereas most of the other men we've seen in this position in the warrior poet sagas and other sagas, they turn immediately to brooding and violence. Well, Kjartan maintains an almost stoic detachment. And if it wasn't for the... <laughs> now, now. <laughs> let, me, let me do my position. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, if it wasn't for the very obvious depression that he falls into, um, I would say he handles it rather perfectly. But, you know, we got to give him credit for not responding in an overtly negative way towards his kinsman, Boltley. Instead, he finds solace in his family and friends. He makes no effort to seek revenge against Boltley and gives no indication that he intends to. He eventually finds his way out of his funk when his sister suggests that he get to know Hrepna a little better. And then Kjartan starts a new life with the lovely Hrepna. And all of this looks to me like he's attempting to make the best of a bad situation, and he's building a new life that actually looks good. It's only when Gudrun and her brothers begin antagonizing him and Hrepna that Kjartan steps up to defend his honor. Even after they have disrespected him by stealing that sword and the headdress, Kjartan's response is, I'm going to say measured, okay? (laughs) Sure, he forces them to go to the bathroom inside for a few days, and he undercuts Boltley in the purchase of the farm at Tunga, but... He's not acting like a raving lunatic here. He's working within the system to wield his power effectively without resorting to violence. He's really following in his father's footsteps. And then then there's that ambush. He approaches the fight with an understanding that Boltley will respect their kinship in the same way that he does. And if Boltley isn't going to fight, well, he feels confident, and I think rightly so, as he shows, that he can beat the Alswissons by himself. But when Boltley steps up to stake a claim to his own manhood and reputation, how does Kjartan respond? Well, he throws his weapon down, and he welcomes Boltley's attack. It's the Obi-Wan Kenobi, as you said. So, Kjartan's death and Boltley's immediate and overwhelming sense of regret, I think they're designed to play on the audience's emotions. Mm-hmm. We, like Boltley, are filled with a sense of loss as Kjartan breathes his last. He has served as a model of what an Icelander can be at his best, even with his flaws. And yes, Kjartan has flaws. He is proud, he is selfish, and he is impetuous. He is warned several times that his actions might have dire consequences, but his impetuousness is the mark of most great heroes, honestly. I don't think that we're meant to see those characteristics as unforgivable flaws. Mm-hmm. I think they, they make him a more complex character. Um, and also, I think you know that impetuousness is the source of his charm. It's the source of his potential for success, like any great hero. So Kjartan is, I think, an unrealistic ideal that the author hopes his audience might appreciate and strive to model their own behavior on. He's a perfect blend of pre- and post-conversion Icelandic values. Now, I've got more to say about him, but uh, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll let you do your little bit, and then we'll have a, a little chat about all of this. Good Lord. Um <clears throat> Well, it, it was a privilege to watch you try to pull that off. Uh, try, I, ju- I literally just went through the text and said, here's what happened. Yeah, okay. So, all right. <laughs> and here's how we're supposed to right. see it. And now I've got the job of condemning Kjartan, which I, honestly, yeah. I think I got the easier job here. Look, for starters, Andy, 
I agree that the saga goes out of its way to emphasize Kjartan's outstanding qualities. Uh, W.P. Kerr's opinion of Kjartan as a portrait designed to fashion a gentleman or noble person in virtuous and gentle discipline. That opinion is fairly typical, I think, especially of older criticism. Wait a minute, you, but, you uh, prepared research for this? No, 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 I'm just, I'm just, I, I have all this to memory. <laughs> yeah, no, you uh, But those, those older scholars, and I think those Kjartan apologists are relying on the authorial voice rather than the substance of the saga, and I think you are too. I prefer Thorsten Veblen's reading of the saga. He argues that due to this author's pressing concern with Christianization of the story, quote, Kjartan Olofsson comes to be depicted as a sanctimonious acolyte given to prayer, fasting, and pious verbiage, instead of being the willful, spoiled child, vain and sulky, of romantic temper and endowed with physical beauty, which the run of the story proclaims it. Hmm. That's the Kjartan I've been reading about for the last several months, Andy. I don't think so. Yes, we get the descriptions of Kjartan and what an ubermensch he is, but that's basically it. Descriptions. The mm-hmm. author uses the conventions of saga narrative to establish Kjartan's bona fides as a heroic figure. But the strength of sagas is in showing, not telling. And when it comes to showing Kjartan's qualities, we've been given an, omer, an overhyped, immature man-child with an overdeveloped sense of self-importance. Immature? If I asked you, Eddie, you, you said you were going to go through the saga and list out what he did. What you did instead was go through the saga and list out all the things people say about him. If I asked you to list Kjartan's actual accomplishments, I mean the things he has actually done, uh-huh. it would be a very short list. He's he, only in the saga for he, like 20 pages. He romances and abandons Gudrun, then goes to Norway. William Penchak uh-huh. says, in Norway, Kjartan is out of his depth. Well, what? I would argue that Kjartan could get out of his depth in a puddle on a platter, but let's recall how he does in Norway. Wait, what? He arrives and is immediately trapped there by King Olaf. He swears an oath to his fellow Icelanders to resist Olaf's pressure to convert to Christianity, and then violates that oath. He loses a swimming wrestling match with Olaf. It is not an equal. He loses that match. No, he doesn't lose. He decides to burn the king in his home, and then abandons that plan before converting. He Was accepts he ever gifts serious? from the king, thus putting himself in the king's debt. Mm-hmm. Then when Olaf still won't let him go home... He actually suggests that Olaf use him as a hostage to force the conversion of Iceland. Penchak, I mean, by one the way, reading of it. Penchak, by the way, says that Kjartan abandons all honor as soon as he's placed under pressure in Norway. And if anything, mm. that understates the case. So, mm. that's his career in Norway. When Kjartan finally does get to go home, with his new bestie Olaf's permission, because of course he wouldn't do anything the Norwegian king didn't tell him he could do, he marries literally the first woman he meets to get back at his ex and her new husband. <laughs> then he gets into a series of childish disputes with Gudrun, culminating in a shabby display of pettiness when he surrounds Gudrun's farm for three days and forces those trapped inside to relieve themselves inside the house. Mm-hmm. And finally, after he strong arms an innocent third party into breaking a contract with Botley in yet another petty act of provocation, he is killed. Andy, I don't think I missed a single significant moment of Kjartan's life as it appears uh-huh. in this saga. And in the end, yeah, you, he you turns out it, to though. be all reputation and no substance. Oh, Everyone God. mourns the loss of a man of Kjartan's potential, but the fact is he'd been doing a first-rate job of squandering that potential his entire life. 
Uh-huh. Oh, are you done? Your thoughts? Well, I guess my first thought is, um, do other people in the saga seem to revere and respect Kjartan? No. <laughs> how, how would you defend that? Uh, aside uh, from aside maybe, from Botley, no. Um, he, how does he become the leader of the Icelanders in Norway? Uh, he becomes a leader of the Icelanders. I think you and According, I, you and I discussed at the time that he was barely able to keep his own alongside the other men who were there. Mm, I don't recall that conversation. Mm. What I what I do know is is reading this saga as compared to say Hallfreder saga, troublesome poet, yeah. uh, or or Christie saga. Mm-hmm. Um, this one places a lot of emphasis on Kjartan's role, right? And Kjartan, as soon as he arrives, he is listed among the great Icelanders that are present. And as soon as things get... saga. Exactly. And as soon as things get going, he is the one who is the negotiator. He is the one who is the face of the Icelanders in Norway. Yes, it's his saga, but it's... it's of the other Icelanders, I want to point out, because he keeps doing things like accepting gifts from the king and making equivocal promises to the king that the other Icelanders do not want him to be doing. Remember, they are angry at him at one point for accepting a gift of a cloak. But let me ask you this. Yes. In in the sagas, in sagas like this, Mm -hmm. is the conversion to Christianity generally viewed as a positive or a negative? Absolutely. Oh, that's not an answer. (laughs) I said, is it viewed as a positive or a negative? It's absolutely viewed as a positive. Absolutely viewed as a positive. Now, Kjartan is somehow more forward thinking than the rest of them and he is open to this conversion he is the 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 person who pushes them towards the conversion Mm -hmm. that says it's okay so the saga sets him up in a way that says here he is as a paragon of what uh iceland pre-christian iceland was and now he's going to become the symbol or the representative the figure of a good christian icelander but and Andy, that's who he becomes in the second part of his story. Okay, but I think you're 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 privileging the Christianization story, and ignoring an equally important or even more important aspect of um, saga protagonists, which is that they are uh-huh. Icelandic nationalists. Yes, and Kjartan is set up here as repeatedly letting down or betraying his fellow Icelanders in favor of the Norwegian king. That Norwegian king mm-hmm. is wielding Christianity. Yes. But mm-hmm. not everyone who ends up converting to Christianity under King Olaf is shown to be as callously disregarding of other Icelanders' opinions and their vows, their oaths, their opinions as mm-hmm. Kjartan is. The, the fact that he is the one in this saga to suggest that he be used as a hostage to force the conversion of Iceland, that's not just a religious story, Andy. That's also a nationalist story, and it's not one in which Kjartan comes off well. Well, I think you're, I mean, yes, one could read that section that way. Uh, but what he says one to just King did. Olaf, <laughs> what he says to King Olaf is, I am unwilling to go to Iceland and actively work against mm-hmm. my kinsmen. Instead, so I'll passively work against my kinsmen. He says, instead, I will stay here. But I, I will note that uh, they will probably be less unwilling, I think is the phrasing. Mm-hmm. They'll be less unwilling mm-hmm. to work against you if I'm here. Yeah. Because you have me as a hostage, <laughs> I, yeah. I I don't think you're helping your case. Not not really. If I'm if I'm being honest, 
Um, but again, what you, you have here is that Icelandic fascination, mm. 13th century Icelandic mm-hmm. fascination with the royal, with the Norwegian of course, court, of course. with the desire to be accepted yep. by them. The fact that Kjartan is so so thoroughly embraced mm-hmm. by the Norwegians and by the king in particular suggests that he is something different. He is special in a way that other Icelanders simply are not. But again, that specialness, Andy, is based entirely on descriptions of him and people's reactions to him. It's not based on anything we see him do or but say s- or think in this saga. Uh, th- that might be true, but so many stories from this period <laughs> and, and from Iceland itself, it, it does that kind of stuff. It mm-hmm. just says, this is who this guy is. He is special. You can tell because he's handsome. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got nice hair. Mm-hmm. Um, trust me that he's a good guy and you should want to be like him. I said he's Ignore the best fighter, everything he I? says and does. Just take my word for it. I just don't know, uh, you know, from for, for this argument, what he says and does that is so egregious and bad. What he's representing Andy, is... I just, a... I just spent several minutes listing out literally every single thing he does in the saga and there wasn't a positive moment in it uh yeah but you like i said you were spinning it in a in a negative way I, just as <laughs> i spun it in a positive way one but can you read had the to same rely on descriptions and people's attitudes rather than what he actually said and did what kjartan represents in his actions is is manliness mm-hmm. more than any other character that we've certainly. encountered so far certainly and i i don't disagree that he is held up as a paragon of manly potential. Yeah. My point is that his story, the tragedy of his story, is squandered potential. That instead of being the great I agree man with that. that he could have been, he devolves into a man who is uh, uh, essentially a traitor to Iceland, although that's a bit more nationalist than you can get in the 11th century, but... He is essentially a betrayer of his people in favor of favor of uh, courting the Norwegian crown and then devolves into a series of petty squabbles with his ex that eventually result in his death. It's the life he could have lived, the life that everyone expects for him because of his promise never, never manifests because instead he becomes what we've read. Yeah, you're really hung up on the the Norwegian section, which is fine. I, I think we should address really quickly before we wrap this up um, the the Gudrun section and the yeah. feud. Well, I was just trying um, to point my way to that right now. Yeah, yeah. So I don't understand how Kjartan in your book is supposed to respond to the provocations. He does come home and he does avoid conflict as best he can. Mm-hmm. He tries not to go to those parties, mm-hmm. which put him in trouble. But Gudrun and her brothers press and press and press mm-hmm. and whether christian or or uh non-christian as an icelander the culture is still in place the culture of honor and he has been insulted gravely by these people mm-hmm. he can't not react in the same way that boltley has to respond to the provocations of that that come in this episode that we've just discussed mm-hmm. kjartan has to respond to what Gudrun and her brothers are doing to him. I mean, I would, as a counterexample, I would point to Kjartan's father, whose reputation, whose lifetime has been has been built around not responding to provocations, about yeah. rising above, right? demonstrating himself to be the better man. Uh, that's been Olaf's defining feature his entire life. Yeah, uh, but he... It's meant that we had a few episodes where not very much happened from a feud point of view because he refused to get drawn into them. Charlton, on the other hand, is very, very willing to be drawn into any feud that's going. And yes, he is provoked. He's also, 
doing things like butting into the conversations between women that are none of his business about placements at a feast to insist that his wife be given the prime place. That, Whether he's right or not. That was an important – yes, the, he I, is right. He, I don't disagree that he is, but it is not his business. And the point is that mm-hmm. he's butting into something that isn't his business in order to score points off Guthrie in that moment. Yeah. But he's not just a victim of provocation. He's also a creator of provocation. It's interesting. Um, I'll say this just to, to, to wrap it up because I don't want to yeah. turn yeah. this into a whole Absolutely. episode. One of the beautiful things about this saga, one, mm-hmm. whatever we say about it when we do our final ratings – the saga does a very good job of setting up characters in complex situations yes. where they are confronted with difficult choices in yes. terms of how to respond to provocation where there really is no winning move. Right. And, and think- it doesn't offer us a good, it never really offers us a good answer or a way out. Exactly. Um, yeah. No, I think it that. shows us the limitations both of the attitude of someone like Olaf, whose response is always, let's find a peaceful solution. Right? There are yeah. limits to that approach and the limits of the approach of someone like Kjartan or Gudrun who respond to every slight as if it is a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that neither of those is seen to be the right way forward. And it's not that they ever propose that there is a right way forward, as you say. Uh, and if we're going to sort of you know drop our masks now, right? I don't think Kjartan is as completely un- irredeemable as I've been saying. I, that mm-hmm. My job just now was to drag him through the mud. Right. Uh, but... I do think that this saga relies very heavily on telling us rather than showing us that he's a great man. And the tragedy is that his life never really comes to be what it looks like it should be. Yeah. Yeah. But out of curiosity, um, how does Njal's saga show us that Gunnar is a good man? Um, Gunnar, one, uh, he is repeatedly shown to be... uh, Willing to ignore provocations, uh, to resist the urge to fight. I think the moment that we talked about it when we read Njal Saga, but I don't know why we're talking about Gunnar Hermundersen now. But when he says after the one battle, I don't know why fighting and killing bothers me so much more than it does other men. Yeah, that's a great redeeming right? characteristic. There's the moment right where he, he but, essentially says, like, I'm, I keep being pushed into this, but I wish it weren't the case. I wish this isn't the life yeah. I was leading. See, okay, so I'll just go back to Kjartan now. Doesn't Kjartan show that same thing when he throws his weapons down in front of Boltley? I mean, he's just been fighting a whole bunch of other dudes. It's This is strictly yes, a matter those of are the not dudes, to fight his foster brother. Those are the dudes that have been provoking mm-hmm. the conflict from the very beginning. Yep. He has justification for fighting them. But there's a whole set of complicated rules, kinship, friendship, and also, you know, Boltley's not really in charge of, of this feud. This you is know, not his fault. I think the difference here, the difference between Gunnar and Kjartan is that Gunnar's regret is that violence must be a part of his life full stop. Mm. Kjartan's only objection is to be pitted against his own foster brother, a foster brother who he has already openly threatened in the past. Uh, again, he he's a child playing a man's game, right? That he he has provoked Boltley, and Boltley has provoked him as well, yes. Um, but he has said, I won't tolerate this. I won't stand down while you do this to me. I won't allow it to continue. And then when it actually comes to a battle with the man he's been telling that he won't ignore, he puts down his weapons. I mean, that's 
uh, you know, yes, it's a tragic moment. Yes, it's even possibly an heroic and redeeming moment. But it's also a moment that he brought about. Let's conclude with this thought from uh, Jonas Christensen. Yeah. He says of, of Kjartan many mm-hmm. things. Kjartan's the hero and this and that. But uh, there's a, this great line in here about Kjartan. Um, let's see. It's on page 277 of Eddas and Sagas. When Islendiga Solgur had the status of holy writ in Iceland, it was a common custom to assess and compare the characters in them. Sensible people were known to opine that Kjartan could not have been a very intelligent man. <laughs> I mean, that's oh, the problem, right? Like I said, <laughs> a little impetuous. Yeah. He's, he's, he is warned several times, uh, maybe don't hang out with Guthrun. That's ah, right. going to be fine. He's warned, don't go to Norway and adopt their customs. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't turn out so well. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, I think it is. his life is a tragedy. I think, you know, our argument is about what that tragedy consists of. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I see lost potential in the sense of lost potential of this is a great man whose life was cut short. Yeah. You see lost potential in he could have been so much better than mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's somewhere in the middle there. All right, so that's our case for and against Kjartan. Now you, the jury, can weigh in. Is Kjartan a saga man's man and worthy of the praise the author heaps on him? Or is he a spoiled brat who never lives up to his potential? And is Boltley a victim, a villain, or a justified saga protagonist? And while we're at it, how are we supposed to be reading Gudrun at this point in the saga? Mm. These are all big questions, and you can chime in with your thoughts or anything else you want to respond with by visiting our unofficial official Discord channel, where folks are discussing everything from population parameters in medieval Iceland to snow golems for some reason. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> now, you could also reach us by email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, where we are Podcast, or you can find us on Twitter, where we're sagathingpod. Last but not least, check out our WordPress blog, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can gather 60 of your closest friends and cousins, surround our houses, and force us to relieve ourselves indoors until we respond to your questions. Well, uh, why are you inviting something like this? I have several questions, well, but that's the first. It's, I mean, it's relatively harmless because I always go to the bathroom indoors, Andy. <laughs> you have one of those indoor toilets? That's so great. Well, it's the, it's the fashion to have indoor toilets at this time. <laughs> well, no one told my architect. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's all for now. We will be back soon with an explosive episode featuring the consequences of the murder of Kjartan Olofsson. Yeah, the deaths of the sons of Thorhat the Chatterbox are only the beginning. The friends of Kjartan are just waiting for their chance to bring revenge on the rest of his killers. Get your scorecards ready, everyone. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Another example of the dangers of an unattached outhouse is uh, the 1988 film Young Guns. Yes. Uh, when I believe you see not one but two different shootouts that happen in a detached outhouse. That's right. That's absolutely uh, it's, right. <laughs> so you want to be you want to be very careful. You always want to check uh, behind uh, the latrine before yeah. you go in because um, it's very dangerous according it, uh, to the Char- works of Emilio Estevez. Uh, is that where Charlie Sheen gets killed? 
Uh, in one of them, yeah. And uh, then, but it's they, also when he when uh, um, Billy the Kid is sent in to deliver the first of the uh, arrest warrants, and instead just shoots the guy by putting poking a gun out of his pants <laughs> and turning around and shooting the guy with it. That's right. Good stuff. I got to watch Young Guns again. Oh my god, I've I've sat through that movie many many times. Both my younger brothers are big big fans.